When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, fellow saints. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And can I tell you how grateful I am that you would join me for scripture study? Or let me join you, uh, since you, you have home court advantage here. I'm so grateful to be able to spend time in God's Word. And I know how busy life can be. Believe me. I used to tell, when people ask how you doing, I used to say, oh, I'm, I'm my head's up, keep my head above water. I no longer say that, because my head hasn't been above water for years. Now I just say, oh, I'm stretching my snorkel. I get deeper and deeper, but as long as I stretch the snorkel and the tips up top, well, the air's getting down here, and somehow I'm surviving. I, I know how many things are pulling on your time, and for you to spend time in God's Word, especially the amount of time that we spend on these lessons, really is, oh, my hat's off to each of you. I was just talking with a good friend of mine who, based on an earlier lesson that I taught, had, had taken up the challenge to do that Book of Mormon marathon, where you read the Book of Mormon once a month for an entire year, so 12 times through. And this guy is super smart, uh, an amazing, amazing guy, and reads a ton. And he said, I don't have time to read all those other books that I usually read. And, and it's been an interesting experience for me, he said to just immerse myself in God's Word in ways that I haven't before, and that it's cut out other things, lesser things in most cases. So whatever you are sacrificing, there, I know there's an opportunity cost to spend this much time in Scripture every week. I, I do hope that most of you at least chop the, these lessons up into smaller segments and make it your daily Scripture study instead of one super long day of Scripture study. Uh, however you do it, I, am, I, am I do recognize the opportunity cost and all the things you are saying no to in order to say yes to some extra time spent in the Word of God. So again, thank you and bless you and I love you for all of that. Now, I want to start today by talking about one of my favorite things, Venn diagrams. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing to get excited about, but to me, man, if you can't show it in a Venn diagram, the principle probably wasn't worth teaching. Not quite. Uh, but I am amazed that with these overlapping circles, when, when you see when, where things combine, it's often in those overlaps, those sweet spots that miracles happen. That's especially the case in my favorite Venn diagram of gospel learning. As I've tried it, when I trained seminary teachers in, in Tennessee, when I've uh, done in-service meetings with my faculty at the U, uh, I've often drawn these three circles on the board and said, well, what are the three S's of gospel instruction? It's like the old days when you had uh, Sesame Street. This, this episode is brought to you by the letter F and the number 2. Well, with gospel teaching, this episode is brought to you by the letter S and the number 3. Because there's three circles on this Venn diagram, each with an S of gospel instruction. There is the S of Scripture, there's the S of student, and the S of spirit. When those three things come together, that's where the miracles take place. And when you have, my favorite teachers of all time have been scriptorians. They knew the S of Scripture inside and out. Uh, but they were also people per, people. people. Is, that a, is that a way to say it? That they connected with their students in, in powerful and personal ways. And maybe even better yet, 
they connected the scriptures to the students in ways that we saw their relevance to our lives. And the more that happens, the more welcome the spirit feels in, in coming to participate in the experience. I, that's the S I can't control. I can invite, uh, but, but I can't force the Holy Ghost to, to be part of my lesson. I, I can't, that's, that's sentimentalism. That's emotionalism. That's, that's making the spirit our junior companion when we're the junior companion of the Holy Ghost. But I have found that if I can get my students to interact with the scriptures in a way that exercises agency, then the Holy Ghost is, feels authorized to participate in the experience. Elder Richard G. Scott taught that principle once, and, and it changed the way I approach scripture. It's hard, like I said, it's hard to find the sweet spot. It's hard to, to, to get into that overlapping center. Because most of us are either extroverts or introverts. Most of us are either really good with, with scripture. That's the introverts, uh, typically. They, they love being alone in, in a room somewhere, just pouring over scripture. And, and people, oh, they get in the way. Uh, whereas extroverts, they love their students and connect with them over just about anything. But it's often hard for them to spend the time to master content. Because it, I'm alone in, in a room somewhere with my book open? Are you kidding me? Those same three S's cover the what, who, and how we teach. The, the what is the scriptures, the who are our students, and the how is through the power of the Spirit. I actually remember the first, my first year of teaching seminary and the training we received, they, they said, if you want to decide what to teach, which is always difficult, there's never enough time to, to squeeze everything in, unless you're doing it on YouTube and there's no, <laughs> there's no closing bell. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, but they, they said, if you want to decide what to teach, here's the three factors. The first is the intent of the prophetic writer. What did the prophet himself want to convey with what he was writing? I mean, you don't want to teach a class on 1 Nephi, for example, and imagine Nephi in the back of the classroom rolling his eyes going, where are you getting this? None of this was on my mind. Second, you want to focus things on the needs of your students because you don't want them rolling their eyes in class either. It needs to be relevant to them. And third, what are the promptings of the Holy Ghost? As, as he helps you sift through principle after principle and decide which ones will be most helpful in a particular lesson. Well, when I read that, I mean, that, those are the three S's again. Prophetic writer, there's what we teach. There's the source, the scriptures. Needs of the students, well, there's students, obviously, and what applies to them. And the promptings of the Holy Ghost, there's the Spirit's involvement. And I worry sometimes that as we're preparing lessons, and honestly, I, I hope I'm speaking to you. I hope you recognize yourself in this because sooner or later we all teach in the church, okay? Or in the home and, uh, and so on. But I think too often we, we pour over scripture. We want to master content and it's based on scripture alone that we decide what we're going to teach. And I've often suggested to teachers, take a picture of your class. And as you're lesson prepping, as you're preparing a lesson, open your scriptures, but also have that, that class picture in front of you so that you can see your audience. Who am I speaking to? And which of these principles on the page will apply to the people in the picture? The, the, one of the best experiences I ever had with this concept, and trust me, we're getting into section 94 today. Okay, this is all lead in. Uh, but it was the first year I ever taught the, the Old Testament in seminary. Yeah, buckle up for that one. And I remember we were in 1 Kings. Okay, at least the next day's lesson was going to be in 1 Kings uh, about the Temple of Solomon. And that the night before happened to be parent-teacher conferences at the high school. And since in Utah, the seminary is right across the street, well, we would have parent-teacher conferences at the same time as the high school. And we could meet with parents and so on. 
Well, this one wonderful mother came in to visit me. Uh, sweet, sweet lady that loved her kids. And I ended up teaching several of them and they were all awesome. Okay, great, great family. But that particular day that she came in and said, Brother Halverson, uh, my son's in your class. And I, I knew that he was awesome, one of my favorite students. And she said, and he really, he loves seminary. He listens to you. And I was hoping that you might be able to drop a few subtle or maybe not so subtle hints to try to help him. I said, well, what, what do you mean? He seems like he's doing great. And she said, well, he is in seminary. In spiritual things, he's, he's doing awesome. But he seems to be slacking off a bit in school, not taking it seriously. He's got great potential, and he definitely did and still does. Uh, he's meeting it. But she just worried that he wasn't meeting that potential then and just kind of shrugging off those other things. And, and she just pl pleaded with me, if there's any way you could talk to him or just bring it up. Well, I mean, we do it at home too, but no man is prophet in his own country, right? Uh, and so if you could just say something. And it was one of those amazing moments where the spirit just kind of pops the lid and pours down inspiration. And so I said to the sweet mom, uh, that actually sounds really good. Would, would tomorrow be soon enough? And she's like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, how about tomorrow? Could, could I drop a hint tomorrow, not just to your student, to your son, but to all of my students, in fact, to every class? And she was like, what? No, no, I'm not trying to hijack your lesson. You don't have to change anything for me. And I smiled and I said, oh, you already have. And I, and I appreciate that because the lesson that I now have in my mind is so much better than the one I had planned for tomorrow. See, like I said, we were going to be doing the Temple of Solomon. Uh, which has everything to do with what's going on in the Doctrine and Covenants right now as they're trying to build the te temple in two spots, Kirtland and Independence. But as I, as I heard the needs of a student and brought that circle into the Venn diagram, it completely changed my perspective on the scriptures that I was planning to teach the next day. Honestly, I don't remember what I was going to teach. But once I knew that there was a student in class that needed to be oh, inspired to do better with his life, to make something more out of himself than he otherwise would have settled for. The spirit, based on the need of that student, gave me insight into the scriptures that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And so instead of teaching whatever I had planned, we talked about what they made the temple out of. We talked about cedar and gold. Uh, the stone of the temple. There's no cedar around Jerusalem, okay? Good pine forests, but no cedar trees. The cedars of Lebanon, oh, that's what it's famous for. But that's quite a ways away. And so to cut down cedar trees and drag them down to the Mediterranean and float them down to Israel and then drag them up the mountain to be able to build the mountain of the Lord, that's a ton of work. And gold? There's not exactly gold mines surrounding the, the, the Temple Mount. And so to trade and to bring gold in to make an incredible sacrifice so that the stone of the temple was covered on the inside with cedar wood. Can you imagine the smell of the temple entering in? And then that cedar wood was covered with gold. Can you imagine the, the light from the, from the candle stand flickering off of every surface Entering the temple of God, the temple of Solomon, would have been so, oh, a feast for every sense. It would have been incredible. And we ended up talking in class for that one student, as well as all of his peers. What are you building your life out of? Is it cedar and gold? Despite all the sacrifice that goes into that, are you building yourself in such a way that you want to give it to God and he'll do something with it? Are you building with cedar and gold? 
Or are you settling for plywood and plaster? Or chicken wire and duct tape? I don't know. Uh, what are you building your life out of? And not just spiritual things. But intellectual, I remember section 88, right? Uh, that here's the spiritual education, but there's a secular education too. And you've, you've got to prepare every needful thing. And so it, it was amazing to watch that lesson resonate with students. And the one it was intended for in particular. Uh, there's, there's something about bringing all of those things together in the Venn diagram and hitting that, that overlapping sweet spot in the middle. Now, perhaps that was in the back of my mind, uh, unacknowledged, but buried in there somewhere, the first time I had to teach section 94 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Today, we'll be covering 94 through 97. And these are all, well, for the most part, temple-focused revelations. We saw early on, was it section 38, that you, that you need to go to the Ohio so that you can be endowed with power from on high? They don't even know the temple yet, but there's, there's the, the first wink-wink, nudge-nudge, okay, subtle hint. In section 88, the hint becomes more obvious. You need to call a solemn assembly. You need to prepare every needful thing and establish a house of prayer and fasting and, and learning and order and God, all those wonderful uh, descriptors of the temple. Well, in section 94 and the other revelations we're going to study today, that's not the only building they need to construct, but it is the focal point. They need to build one in Kirtland. They need to build one in Independence. And there have been some obstacles in both areas to that construction. Now, I need to confess something here. The first time I taught Section 94 in, in, in seminary, I was, I mean, it was the night before. I'm, I was studying, trying to prepare for the next day's lesson. That, that, that was one piece of advice my, my first trainer gave me. You don't have to know the end from the beginning. You only have to be a day ahead of your students. Well, I was just barely a day ahead of my students. And that night before, I was studying Section 94. And here's my confession. I was bored to tears. I mean, I was studying Section 94 thinking, does any of this apply to my students? They're going to be bored tomorrow if I'm bored tonight. Uh, what, what will they see here? See, here's the, here's the thing. And this was ironic to me because I love history. I'm a, I'm a historian. Uh, I love architecture. That's what I had wanted to be before I decided to go teach the gospel forever. Uh, and so, and I love religion. Go figure. And, and section 94, speaking of Venn diagrams, there's a historical element, there's an architectural element, and there is a, a religious element. Because section 94, the, the saints are being told, you need to build some buildings for the kingdom of God. They already had, had thoughts of the temple, but now they're going to need to build also an office for the first presidency to function, a kind of an administrative office for the church, and a printing office. They'd been, they had done that in, in Independence. They wanted to have one in, in Kirtland as well. And so Section 94, as far as the historical context is concerned, is here are these historical religious buildings that need to be constructed. And I'm a historian that loves architecture and religion, and yet even I am bored with Section 94. And I'm thinking, my students don't care much about history, and they don't care much about architecture, and they hopefully they care a little bit about religion, but historical religious architecture? Uh, I don't know what's going to resonate with them. Well, I learned something that day that's been repeated over and over ever since. That scripture's only a boring when it's not relevant. And if you want to profit from your scripture study, then find its application. That's what Nephi taught us in 1 Nephi 1923. Did, I did liken all scriptures unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. 
You want to learn something from Scripture? Then liken it. You want Scripture study to be profitable to you? Then find its modern-day relevance. Move from the them, there, then to the us, here, now. And once you see yourself in Scripture, oh, it comes to life because it's your life that you're learning about. Now, easier said than done, right? And that was the case for me in section 94 as I kept thinking, they probably don't care about these buildings and, and how big they are and what the length and the width is supposed to be. It's, it's like reading floor plans that aren't in a picture. It's just, it's just spelled out for them. And I, ah, what are my students going to get from this? Well, if I hadn't found relevance, then I, wasn't, I hadn't studied enough. And so I kept pouring over this one section until I noticed a word that kept coming up. We'll see it several times as we go through verse by verse. And that word was pattern. And I realized that the Lord was establishing some patterns here that he wanted the saints to follow. I said, okay, is, so we're going to do patterns tomorrow? Well, in a way, it was actually a really interesting experience as I was pondering this and almost, not quite, but talking out loud with the Lord going, what am I supposed to teach here? They don't care about historical, architectural, religious architecture. And, and it was almost like the Spirit gave me permission to, to get rid of that stuff then. And I was like, huh? It was like the part that they don't think applies to them. Get rid of it. What will be left? And I'm like, seriously? I'm editing scripture? It's like, well, no. Well, actually, I did. What I ended up doing, I retyped section 94. Uh, this was before PowerPoint presentations were big, and I just made an overhead uh, transparency. Remember those back in the day? And I wanted it to look exactly like the page that we see in Scripture, section 94. This was also the days before smartphones. Okay? Students had the, the paper text. And I went through, and I typed it all up, and then I, I erased, or made you know, into white font, anything that had to do specifically with historical religious architecture. Uh, I got rid of the things that didn't seem applicable. And all that was left were phrases about patterns of building and patterns of, of preparing and patterns of dedicating because that's what I wanted my students to focus on. It was just like that cedar and gold experience of it's not, we're not here to study the temple of Solomon. We're here to become temples of God ourselves. So build with cedar and gold. And I realized that as God is giving us these patterns in section 94 to follow, it's our lives that we're building after the pattern that God has given us. And so I made two copies on this overhead transparency. And one was the copy that had all the stuff I was going to get rid of. And the other was the copy of all the stuff I wanted to leave. And then I put them to, the two together so it looked exactly like this. Laid it down on the, on the overhead projector and showed it and said, does this look like, in class the next day, uh, does this look like your page? And they're like, oh, yeah, it looks like the same thing. And then I explained my dilemma of the irrelevance and, and sheer boredom of section 94. And then I, I slowly peeled off the, the top layer of those two, uh, those two overhead transparencies. And I mean, this, this was epic technology for the year 2000 or whatever it was, uh, that they just saw all these things disappear on the screen. And, and anything that seemed irrelevant, the them, there, then, disappeared. And all that was left were these words and phrases that, that spoke to us once we had the eyes to see. That's the power of scripture study. 
It's finding principles, which as Elder Scott described, are concentrated truths packaged for application. To, to, to mine out the, the gemstone from the surrounding slag and not to worry so much about the historical detail, uh, but to find the principle that is that concentrated truth that we can then apply to our own situation. I, I hope this is making sense. I, well, I think we'll see it as we go through section 94 verse by verse. But that's what we're after. We're looking for relevance. We're looking for personal application. Uh, not at the expense of the scriptures. Remember, the, the scriptures are one of those S's. The prophet's in the back going, you better stick to my stuff. Okay? But I hope that we'll see how these verses apply to us as we go through them. Verse 1. Again, verily I say unto you, my friends. It's amazing how often he's repeated that, uh, that reminded them of that relationship. My friends, a commandment I give unto you. So I'm not coming in with guns blazing, just calling the shots and, and commanding my servants to get to work. It's, it, it's commanding my friends, people that I love. Now, whom I love, I chasten. We'll see more of that in section 97 today. But I have a commandment for you, friends. It's, it's given in friendship. It's it, with your best interests in mind. And here it is. That ye shall commence a work of laying out and preparing a beginning and foundation of the city of the stake of Zion here in the land of Kirtland, beginning at my house. Now the focus here is on the land of Kirtland. It's where Joseph Smith happens to be at the time. Uh, but that's ironic because so much of the saints' focus was on Missouri. That's Zion. That's the center spot. Remember everyone's jumping, not everyone, too many people are jumping the gun to get down there, dibs on the land of Zion. Well, earlier we saw that Kirtland still needs to remain a stronghold for, it, for the next five years. Earlier, we, we saw it spoken of as a stake. Well, here that same phrase is repeated. We're talking about a, the city of the stake of Zion here in the land of Kirtland. And to associate Zion, are we starting to see the, the parameters expand? That it's not just Independence, Missouri. Yes, that's the center place. That's going to be the, the tallest pole in the middle of the tent. But as we lengthen her cords and strengthen her stakes, as the, as the tent of Zion, the tabernacle of God, begins to expand, well, there is a stake of Zion right here. We're going to see the definition of Zion expand even further once we get to section 97. But there's something about this, this hint of right here. It's not just there. Right here you can build Zion. I think too often we have this right around the, the next corner syndrome, that I'll be happy once I get around the next corner, that I'll be able to raise my kids well if I get to the right spot. Well, right here is a stake of Zion, and so build it. And where are they going to start? They're going to begin at my house. We saw that in, in Independence as well, the center spot, that the temple is going to be where all of this begins. Now, if we're being historical, we could talk about this city of the stake of Zion. We could talk about uh, Kirtland and the construction of the Kirtland Temple. We'll see more of that when we get to section 109. But if we're trying to make it even more relevant, if we're trying to build our own lives out of cedar and gold, then what would you get rid of in verse 1? Imagine getting rid of phrases like city of the stake of Zion here in the land of Kirtland. And what's left? Notice this commencing a work of laying out and preparing a beginning, a foundation. And in verse 2, Behold, it must be done according to the pattern which I have given unto you. 
Now think about that in terms of the life that you are constructing. And has God given us patterns to commence our work, to lay out and prepare a beginning, a foundation? If the wise man built his house upon the rock, imagine the rock of revelation and the rock of the Redeemer that the Lord has, has given us. And is that what we're what we're basing everything in our lives upon. There is no better pattern. To think about what our children learn in primary, all those incredible songs, I'm trying to be like Jesus, like we talked last week. The Lord has given us patterns to begin things, to, to lay a foundation of faith. Now verse 3 gets historical again. Let the first lot on the south be consecrated unto me for the building of a house for the presidency, for the work of the presidency, in obtaining revelations, and for the work of the ministry of the presidency, in all things pertaining to the church and kingdom. And verse 4, a little more architecture here, floor plans. Verily I say unto you that it shall be built 45 by 65 feet in the width thereof, and in the length thereof in the inner court. In verse 5, there shall be a lower court and a higher court, according to the pattern which shall be given unto you hereafter. So, so far, there we have, I'm speaking of a literal pattern, here is the floor pattern, known as the floor plan. 55 by 65 in the inner court, there's going to be a lower and a higher, this is how it's going to be. And this building, as we saw back in verse 3, is going to be for the work of the presidency. And like we learned in section 90, uh, what is that first presidency supposed to be engaged in? Things like obtaining revelation, the work of the ministry, not just administering, but ministering to people. Anything that pertains to the church and the kingdom is on their response, is on their shoulders. They, they bear the keys of the kingdom collectively, right? And so this is the, the, they need a place to be able to do all of that. If you've ever been to downtown Salt Lake City, uh, just east of the temple, you see another block that is more administration. There is the church office building, the big one, the tall one that you see, and next, or across the, the, the plaza from that, is the church administration building, where the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve have their offices. And their prophets, seers, and revelators are hard at work in obtaining revelation and guiding the work of the ministry in everything that pertains to the church and the kingdom. Now here again, let's find some principles and go from them there then to us here now. We may not be members of the First Presidency, but do we have a place that we can dedicate and consecrate to God, even if it's just our closet. Remember, that's how the Lord spoke of prayer, enter into your closets. That doesn't have to be literal, but a place that is dedicated to God, a place that is separate from the world. Um, that's often why he calls the temple the mountain of the Lord's house, because mountains, they're hard to climb, right? They're the place where heaven meets earth, uh, but the effort that is required it definitely separates the, the casual Christians from the, the, the climbing ones, okay? And so to have a place or a time or, or a part of your life consecrated to God, to do what? To obtain revelation? Like we talked last week in section 93, do we take time to be holy? Do we, are there places where we can be still and come to know God? Places where where revelation seems to come and flow more smoothly to us? Do, do we, have we carved out space? Again, this is still part of the, the beginning and founding the, the, the pattern that God is giving us. And part of that includes 
ministering. If Revelation is looking up, then ministry is looking out. If, if Revelation is first great commandment, the vertical one, then the work of the ministry is the second great commandment, the, the horizontal one. Love God. Learn from him. Love neighbor. Share with them. In verse 4, it's interesting that when he focuses on the, the dimensions of this building, he focuses on the inner court more than the outer court, which might tell us something also about cleansing the inner vessel or perhaps about the Lord looking upon the heart instead of the outward appearance. Are, are we carving out enough space for the inward things? Is our inner court consecrated and dedicated to God? And, and is there a lower court and a higher court in our lives? Is there some kind of hierarchy of needs? Do we have higher and lower priorities? Like President Oaks taught years ago about good, better, best. Where are inner versus outer, upper versus lower? Are we, are we distinguishing between those things and making sure that part of what we are laying out and preparing, part of our foundation is establishing those priorities to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto us. Not holding the higher hostage to the lower or the, the inward to the outward. All of that according to the pattern which is given us. In fact, if you notice the pattern first mentioned in verse 2 refers to that laying out and preparing the foundation. The pattern he mentions in verse 5 applies to the building being built in verse 4. So God gives us patterns to, to lay out the foundation. He gives us patterns to prepare. He also gives us patterns to build. This is like spiritual creation followed by physical creation. You, you, you prepared it. You laid out the foundation. Well, now build upon it. A pattern for the first, a pattern for the second. And now a pattern for the third. Look at verse 6. It shall be dedicated unto the Lord from the foundation thereof, which I gave you a pattern for, according to the order of the priesthood, according to the pattern which shall be given unto you hereafter. Notice, by the way, this idea of given you hereafter, it keeps talking about patterns in the future tense as well. God has given us so many past patterns to follow. Thankfully, the scripture is there for us. But also this promise of patterns yet to come. No wonder the presidency needs to obtain revelations. They are giving patterns for the church to follow in a changing environment. Uh, the same pattern won't fit if you keep if your body size and shape keeps changing. I'm learning that the hard way. Uh, but to, to see the patterns that will come hereafter, whether that's institutional revelation to the presidency or individual revelation to me. Am I laying a foundation according to God's pattern? Am I building my life according to God's pattern? And am I dedicating it to him according to that pattern? That to me is the beauty of building with cedar and gold instead of plywood and plaster. It's something that, it's like, look what I've made of myself and I can offer it to God in hopes that it will be acceptable to him. That's what dedication is all about. And, and we talk about temple dedications. Well, back to Paul, if we are the temple of God, have we ever had a, a temple dedication? Have we ever dedicated our lives to God? Well, actually, yes, when we were baptized. Yes, when we, whenever we partake of the sacrament. Yes, when we were endowed or sealed. Anytime we make covenants, we are consecrating and dedicating our lives to God. Are we doing that according to his divine patterns? 
See in verse 7, it shall be wholly dedicated unto the Lord for the work of the presidency. And you can take it holy as it's spelled here, W-H-O-L-L-Y, as well as get rid of one of the L's and the W, and it's holy H-O-L-Y. Either way, what are we offering to the Lord? Have we wholly dedicated our lives to Him? Remember, He asks for all our heart, might, mind, and strength. The whole thing. He wants to stake a claim in both the inner court and the outer, both the higher and the lower. He wants to be welcome in the entire house. I mean, this goes back to that, that phrase I, I often quote from, from St. Augustine about plundering the riches of Egypt, of, of wanting to get the best possible materials you can. There's the cedar and gold, right? Uh, and to, to plunder the riches of Egypt as you're heading out of bondage and onto the promised land because you're going to need gold to be able to build the, the tabernacle implements, the altar, of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the, the laver, the, the, the altar of sacrifice, all of these things need the very, they deserve the very best. If God held nothing back in offering us his only begotten son, and if Christ held nothing back, if he was wholly dedicated unto the call of God that had given, been given to him, here am I, send me, then how can we settle or force the Lord to settle for anything less than our very best. So plunder the riches of Egypt. Wholly dedicate yourself to this work. Get the best education you can. Develop your talents as much as you can. But pay whatever price is necessary to be able to wholly dedicate yourself to the Lord. That is the choice we're making. After they plundered the riches of Egypt, they, they had a decision. Do we melt down this gold to make tabernacle implements the way God had asked of us, the way he intended? Or are we going to use them to build a golden calf? Sadly, the ancient Israelites chose poorly the first time. And thankfully, they were given a chance to repent and choose better the next. The same is true for us. And one other thing about wholly dedicating something to God, whether it's the house of the presidency here or whether it's our lives, in our case, Years ago, when I was an undergrad in college, I was a history major, uh, history. I really loved religion and architecture, and so temples were kind of my thing. And I was in a history class that was kind of wide open. It was like how to become a historian more than just, we're going to study the Enlightenment period. Uh, and so we got to pick whatever we wanted to do research on. It was fascinating. I was at BYU, but this professor I had was not a member of the church. And he had brought in some amazing perspectives. Uh, in spite of the fact that I chose a very Latter-day Saint uh, project to work on. His outside eyes were, were welcome uh, to help me understand some things. But what I wanted to study was the history of temple dedicatory prayers. I'll probably talk about this more when we get to section 109, since that is a dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple that's canonized in Scripture. We have another one, the dedicatory prayer of the Temple of Solomon back in, in 1 Kings. But what I wanted to do was study those two scriptural prayers and then study every other temple dedicatory prayer that had been given in this dispensation. Now, thankfully, for my sake, that was before President Hinckley started dotting the earth with temples. I think we had 50 at the time. And so I read all 50 dedicatory prayers. Uh, I, I've read another hundred or so since then as additional temples have been built but trying to see the history of temple dedicatory prayers unfold. And I learned a ton. Uh, like I said, I, I may talk more about that when we get to 109. 
But, but this idea of wholly dedicating something unto God, in er, early on, uh, the Salt Lake Temple is a, a, a great example of it. When they dedicated the temple, they wholly dedicated it to him to the point of almost inventorying everything where we dedicate the windows and the window panes and the sashes and the beams and the, and the doors and the locks. And it's like, no wonder those temple dedicatory prayers were so long because they went through the whole shopping list, the whole inventory, all the building materials and dedicated everything. We still dedicate everything now, but temple dedicatory prayers have grown much, much shorter in the last hundred years. And so now we say, the prophet will usually say things like, we dedicate this building from the, the lowest footing to the top of the angel Moroni, or things like that. And everything in between. Okay, we, we good? Is it wholly dedicated to God? We don't have to list every nail, do we? Uh, no, you don't. But, but, you have to, but you should dedicate it to him. And, and to me, there's something wonderful about that, that wholeness it all, remember what the Lord said back in section 29, it's all spiritual to me. So I'm not saying you live your life in a white shirt and tie, although some of us kind of do. Uh, it, it's not that you don't have other responsibilities and other jobs and other fun things to do with your family, but to do all of those things with an eye single to the glory of God, to seek ye first the kingdom of God, to wholly dedicate your life to him and grant him Open access, free reign. It's amazing to see what God does with a house that he feels welcome in. One that has been founded and prepared and then built and then dedicated to God according to his divine patterns. Now verse 8 and 9, now that the building is dedicated, wholly dedicated to God and it's holiness to the Lord that needs to cover everything, in verse 8, ye shall not suffer any unclean thing to come in unto it. And my glory shall be there. My presence shall be there. Of course it will. I feel welcome there. But, verse 9, if there shall come into it any unclean thing, my glory shall not be there. And my presence shall not come into it. It can't. I can't. You've let something else in, in my stead. It's interesting to think of the Garden of Eden. Uh, symbolizing the presence of God and, and the tree of life there, symbolizing his love, but guarded by the, these, this cherubim and the flaming sword. Brigham Young once taught that the, one of the purposes of the endowment is to learn how to, to pass those cherubim, how to pass those angels that stand as sentinels, so that we can gain access once again to the presence of God. The temple is what reverses the fall. It's what brings us back into God's presence. It's what gets us around cherubim and the flaming sword. And I often think of that when I go into a temple and present my temple recommend to one of those sweet little old men that's, that's standing at the desk. Those are the cherubim, whether or not they're issued a, a, a flaming sword. Actually, they have one of those too. Uh, since flame is, is purity and the sword is God's word and I need to be pure and live according to God's word. That's what got those Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood signatures on my temple recommend to begin with. But as I then show that to those cherubim, to those sentinels, and they allow me entrance into the house of God. I sometimes thought about, imagine if you had one of those at your house. Can you imagine uh, whatever you are going to bring in, you, you're standing at the desk of your, of your home by the front door and say, oh, can, can I please see your recommend? Are you worthy to come 
Are you an influence that would invite the glory and presence of God? Or, or would God feel unwelcome here if I welcome you? And I'm, and I'm not talking people here so much as I'm talking influences. If I'm, I'm talking entertainment, I'm talking lifestyle, I'm, I'm talking thoughts and behaviors. Can you imagine before inviting a movie or a song or, or an influence into your home or a thought into your mind or a behavior into your, into your interactions? Can you imagine if you checked for its recommend? Will the Spirit of God feel welcome or withheld? based on what I'm contemplating here. Now, verse 10, we shift from the house for the presidency to the house of the printing. And like I said, the, the three main buildings were focused on here in Kirtland, and they're supposed to do the same thing in Independence. I, I love the, the comparisons of these three, because if the temple, we usually associate with the redemption of the dead. Now, they're not going to quite get that in Kirtland yet. That's going to come in Nauvoo, but, the, but that's the focal point. The temple is what connects heaven and earth and, and passes the veil of death. Uh, redemption of the dead. The work of the presidency, I can't think of a better oh, symbol, a structural symbol, or in this case, symbolic structure, for the perfection of the saints. If they're receiving revelation and, and presiding over the work of the ministry, that perfects me as a Latter-day Saint. And then this third house, it's going to be focused on printing the revelations well, the greatest missionary tool I ever had was a printed revelation, in the, namely the Book of Mormon, to give to people. And, and so sharing the gospel, I mean, the threefold mission of the church is all here. And actually, to add President Monson's fourth one about uh, caring for the poor and the needy, well, we've been watching the Bishop's Storehouse be a focal point, whether it's the, the Newell K. Whitney store there in Kirtland, or the Bishop's Storehouse that Edward Partridge is, is supposed to be building up there in, in Independence. So yeah, there's a building for all four of the, of the missions of the church. Places that will enable us to redeem the dead, perfect the saints, proclaim the gospel, and care for the poor and needy. All this for the salvation of Zion, as we saw in a previous revelation. In verse 10, again, verily I say unto you, the second lot on the south shall be dedicated unto me for the building of a house unto me, specifically for the work of the printing of the translation of my scriptures, and in all things whatsoever I shall command you. So we've got to print copies of the Book of Mormon, copies of the Book of Commandments, later known as the Doctrine and Covenants, copies of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. We want the word to go forth. You are stewards of it. Uh, you will be held responsible, accountable for the words God has given. These are the oracles of God. Beware how you hold them, right? It is one of God's greatest priorities to make sure that his word gets into the hands of his children because that's how they find their way back home. Now, verse 11 is going to look a lot like the other buildings that God is calling upon them to build. It's following a pattern after all. It shall be 55 by 65 feet in the width thereof and the length thereof in the inner court. And there shall be a lower and a higher court. So like I said, here's the pattern, inner versus outer, upper versus lower. Here's the dimensions. Here's, my, here's how much space you need to be giving me. It's like that upper room uh, where the Last Supper took place. It's, we always call it the upper room, but based on all the accounts, there's a lot of other great adjectives. It was upper, it was large, it was furnished, it was prepared. Are we? 
what are we offering God? What are we wholly dedicating to Him? If we've laid out the foundation and, and prepared ourselves, if we've built ourselves into something we can then dedicate to God, is it large enough for Him? Is it uppermost in our list of priorities? Is it furnished with every good thing that we can offer Him? Is it well prepared? Are we well prepared? For God to come in, for the Lord to use us, our lives, as a last supper of sorts. A place of covenant, a place of cleansing, a, pa a place of teaching, of worship, a place for the Lord. In verse 12, this house shall be wholly dedicated unto the Lord as well. From the foundation thereof, that first pattern, for the work of the printing in all things whatsoever I shall command you, to be holy, that's the other kind of spelling, H-O-L-Y, undefiled, according to the pattern in all things as it shall be given unto you. Honestly, I ended up loving this revelation. By the time I was done seeing it through the Lord's eyes, seeing it through the lens of not just content and source material, but the lens of student, audience, what do they need? Boy, did it become... Oh, profitable and something for my learning, for our learning, once we likened it unto ourselves. Patterns to follow in all things. He then ends the revelation with a few verses about this building committee that was supposed to be responsible to get all these, these edifices constructed. Verse 13, on the third lot shall my servant Hiram Smith receive his inheritance. 14. On the first and second lots on the north shall my servants Reynolds Cahoon and Jared Carter receive their inheritances. And 15. That they may do the work which I have appointed unto them, to be a committee to build mine houses, plural, according to the commandment which I, the Lord God, have given unto you. Now this building committee is going to have a lot of work to do. They're going to need to be as close to the action, the scene of their responsibility as possible. Uh, but they're going to come at it from different angles. I mean, if the, if the house of the presidency was the first lot south, and then the house of the pr printing was the second lot south, and then Hiram was going to have the third lot to the south, but then Reynolds and Jared were going to have lots, first and second lots on the north. Again, they're, they're close. But I do love the fact that to get to their, their scene of endeavor, Hiram's going to be coming from the south, and Reynolds and Jared are going to be coming from the north. And to me, that's a beautiful thing about committees and councils and couples. Uh, that we see things from different perspectives. We come at them from different directions. But we're focused. We're wholly dedicated to giving our very best to the work of God. Your perspective may be different from mine. And that's a good thing. You'll see things that I miss. And vice versa. There are a lot of houses to build according to God's commandments and based on his patterns. But there's a whole lot of people that need to be involved in making those things happen. Now, verse 16, these two houses are not to be built until I give unto you a commandment concerning them. Interesting that in the midst of talking about hastening, hastening, hastening his work, here it's, but not quite yet. Okay, don't do it until I've told you. Back in section 58, it was, you shouldn't have to be told everything. Don't wait to be commanded or compelled. You're, you're a, an agent unto yourself. But there's also times where the Lord reigns us in and says, yes, these are important things to do as whatever patterns you're following, whether it's laying a foundation, whether it's building, whether it's dedicating things to God, there is a, a pattern of timing as well. 
And as Eleanor Maxwell once said, it's not enough to say, Lord, thy will be done. We also need to say, Lord, thy timing be done. And so to be open to the Lord's commandments on when to do certain things. And, and how much this instruction he gives us, that's verse 17. Now I give unto you no more at this time. Amen. This is a line upon line, precept upon precept, gradual dissemination of truth. Uh, these are patterns which shall be given unto you hereafter. So be patient. We need to be. And thankfully, when it comes to the Lord's timing, we can afford to be when he's the one laying out the timetable for us to follow. Now, you see what the Spirit helped us do in section 94? To take something seemingly irrelevant, uh, historical, religious architecture, and finding ourselves in these verses? My friends, I hope that you've seen the patterns for us to follow. And I hope we're preparing and building and wholly dedicating ourselves to God according to those patterns. Cedar and gold. He deserves the very best we have to offer. Now in section 95, he shifts back to the first and foremost of the buildings that they're supposed to be constructing. Yes, we'll need a house for the presidency. And yes, we'll need a house for the, the printing. But God needs a house in which to endow his saints with power from on high. The, the clearest instruction to build it was back in section 88. And that was right at around New Year. Well, if you look at the section heading of section 95, it's now June. It's the following summer. And six months into it, and they're still not at work on the temple as they ought to be. And so look how the revelation begins. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love. Just like he said back in 94, one, this is a commandment for you, my friends. Well, I love you, but brace yourself, because whom I love, I also chasten. Why? that their sins may be forgiven. For with the chastisement, I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things out of temptation. And I have loved you. <laughs> Just, there's a little foreboding there. It's like, you know what? I love people enough to chasten them when they do wrong. And believe me, I really love you. Now there's gonna be some tough love here. There's gonna be some calling to repentance because like I said, six months have passed and you're still not up and doing. What are you waiting for? Now, God could have just rebuked them, uh, cleansed their temple for lack of building a temple. He is justice personified after all. And yet there's so much mercy throughout verse 1, since he's mercy personified as well. For any of you parents out there that sometimes have to approach your children with tough love, to, to chasten those whom you love. I don't know if there's a better pattern, speaking of patterns, to follow on how to give a, a loving rebuke. How does the Lord do it? Again, go line by line again. You whom I love. He begins by reaffirming his love to them. As long as the person that we're disciplining or rebuking or chastening knows that that's the, the ground level, the, the basis upon which all this... This chastisement is coming at the core, at the base. This is motivated by my love for you, not my anger or my frustration or my disappointment. You whom I love. Now, once they're, they're completely convinced of that love, next comes the chastening. I chasten. But why is he chastening them? So they can be delivered from the consequences of the act that they're being chastened for. I mean, to look at that, I prepare a way for your deliverance. And the only way deliverance can come is through repentance. 
So that's why I'm calling you out on this sin. I'm chastening you to wake you up to the fact that you are in bondage to something. You're holding yourself back and to be delivered. That's what's going to happen once you repent of your sins. Now, when he talks about I, that your sins may be forgiven, to reconfirm that promise throughout it all, I love you. That's why we need to talk about this situation. Uh, what you're doing cannot lead you in good directions, and, and I want you to know the right direction to follow. There, there is a way of deliverance, and it's through repentance. And I promise that as you fulfill those conditions of repentance, forgiveness will be waiting for you. That is the way of deliverance. And then how does he end verse 1? I've loved you. That, that, that's the book ends. The middle is the harder part to hear. This is, this is what you've been doing wrong. But if I can bookend that with love, love from the beginning, love at the end. This is section 121, that after you've rebuked them betimes with sharpness, then you pour out, you show them a greater outpouring of love, lest they esteem thee to be thine enemy. At the beginning, they knew that you weren't their enemy. There's the love. By the end, do they still feel that way? Have they, have they learned what they're doing wrong, but only in so much that it awakens them to a desire to seek the way of deliverance and to receive the promised forgiveness that has been assured them all along? I think if we disciplined in that spirit, there is so much a better, the, the odds have increased that the, that the child or the person will decide to change. Now, verse 2, wherefore ye must needs be chastened and stand rebuked before my face. And here's why. Verse 3, ye have sinned against me a very grievous sin, in that ye have not considered the great commandment in all things that I have given unto you concerning the building of mine house. Six months have passed. What's, what's going on? What's the holdup? I mean, we just saw back in section 94, verse 16, those other houses shouldn't be built until I give you a commandment. I already gave you a commandment concerning the temple. That one should be, should be up. I mean, have we even gone to the, to the foundation and preparation stage, let alone the building and dedicating stage? We've got to get going. Notice he says that this, he calls it a sin, not just an oversight, and he calls it a grievous sin. If you remember back in Jacob chapter 2, when Jacob is talking about the pride and materialism of the Nephites, and, and then he says, you know, but if that were it, I would rejoice over you. Unfortunately, you are also guilty of grosser crimes. And those had to do with the law of chastity. It's interesting to think of gross crimes and here, grievous sins to grieve, to sorrow over something. It's interesting to think of what the Lord is, is grieving about. I mean, when it came to a, a, a temple that was, was defiled, when Jesus came in and overturned the tables of the money changers, that was righteous indignation more than grief. That's the indignation over a defiled temple. But what's the feeling the Lord has for an absent temple, for an inability to be able to reveal himself to his saints in the way that he envisioned. The, the fact that he's being held back and cannot yet endow his children with power from on high. That's grief from a loving father who chastens us because he loves us, who grieves over our sins because, because we're not being punished 
for them. We're being punished by them. And that grieves him. You haven't considered the commandment. And it's a great commandment. One of the most important ones I can give you. And it's for your own sake. Yes, I called it mine house. But it's really ours. It's one I'm inviting you into. So consider it. That, that's such an interesting verb there in verse 3. You have not considered this commandment. Do, you, do, do we allow the commandments to, to rest down on our souls sufficiently to really consider them? Do we think about the reasons behind them? Do we contemplate and consider why it's so important we do certain things? What would the consequences of obedience versus disobedience be? Because if we consider that a little bit more often, I don't think we need to be rebuked so frequently because we would be living them. It's actually interesting in the book of Haggai. Uh, I know everybody's favorite Old Testament uh, prophet. You see, Haggai is so connected to this story because in Haggai's day, the Israelites had already, Jerusalem had been destroyed, including the temple. They'd been dragged off to Babylon. That was, you know, when Lehi and his family got out of Dodge, right? Uh, but then when Cyrus the Great comes along and says, no, you guys can go back uh, and rebuild your city and even rebuild your temple. And it's during the ministry of Haggai that some of that is supposed to be taking place. But Haggai chapter 1, the, the, it, I love the way he puts this. This is verse 5 and verse 7. And he says in both of those verses, consider your ways. Now, can you hear the Lord thinking the same thing here in section 95 verse 5? You have not considered the great commandment. It's like, what are you thinking about? I mean, you parents, have you ever said that or thought that to your kids? What are you thinking? What are you considering? Think about this. And so that's exactly what Haggai says to the, to the Israelites. Consider your ways, verse 5. Verse 7, consider your ways. Well, what were they supposed to be considering? What he said right in between those bookends, verse 6. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Minor Prophets. He says, ye have sown much. That's not sowing like... A needle and thread. It's like sowing as in planting seeds. Okay, You have sown much and bring in little. So you're doing all kinds of work planting. You're just not harvesting anything. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And then my favorite metaphor here. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. I think about that every Halloween and imagine some poor little kid putting in all the effort to go from house to house. I mean, when I was a kid, we'd cover whole zip codes, okay, uh, with, with a massive uh, pillowcase to fill it all, uh, to hold it all. But can you imagine if there'd been a hole at the bottom of the pillowcase? And despite all of your efforts, I mean, you sewed and you, you ate and you drank and you, and you clothed yourself and you worked. You worked hard but you just ended up leaving a trail of candy for the guy behind you. He was stoked. <laughs> you, you earned your wages and put it into a bag with holes. You came home empty-handed, not because the, the people you, you, whose doors you knocked on were ungenerous. Oh, no, you, and not because you were lazy. You worked and you earned and received wages. You just don't have anything to show for it. I don't know of a better verse to dramatize wow, a, a terrestrial level of living. Because you're honorable, you're just not valiant. You're doing stuff, but you're kind of going through the motions. 
I mean, if you're an athlete or you're a musician or you're uh, an actor, have you ever been anything you have to practice? Have you ever gone to practice and known that you're no better at the end than you were at the beginning? Because you went, but didn't really, I mean, you did it, but you were just going through the motions. That's the problem in Haggai's day. And they've got to consider their ways. Look through your bag, sew up every, every frayed edge. Make sure that it will hold the wages that God in his generosity is giving you and that you in your, in your efforts are earning. You're earning wages. To understand the context of Haggai, because here's the other element here. What was he getting at? Specifically, he was getting at the temple or better said, the, the absence of the temple. The Israelites had come back to the Holy Land and they were building their wall to remain safe within. There's Ezra and Nehemiah for you. But they hadn't quite gotten around to building the temple yet. You see, that's where Haggai begins his message. Back in verse 2 of chapter 1, he said, The people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You get a sense of that? Like, ah... Late 1832, beginning 1833, we're, we're busy with other things. I mean, it's, it's winter time in Ohio. It's, it's an inconvenient time to begin construction. Or rewind 23 or 2400 years, and it's those Israelites. It's just not, now's not the best time to rebuild the temple. I mean, I, I, I promise we'll get to it, but we've got some other priorities first. We're going to put the temple on the, in the lower court. And it's like, Haggai's like, well, what are, you, what are you putting on the upper court then? What is of greater importance than the house of God? In verse 4, he says, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? I mean, sealed as in ceiling. You've got, you've got a house that has a ceiling on it. I mean, you're done. What, what else are you working on? You're trying to like, I don't know, beautify things and put in a new kitchenette in the basement? I mean, what... <laughs> Even go back to the Temple of Solomon. And in his good days, he spent seven years building God a house of cedar and gold. But in his bad days, he spent almost twice that time building himself a house with plenty of the finest materials for him as well. You see the danger here? Whose house are you building? Whose kingdom are you constructing? So no wonder Haggai... Consider your ways. No, no wonder you have nothing in your bag to show because it's, it's so self-centered. I mean, Jesus taught that. You want to find yourself, then lose yourself. No wonder you have nothing to show for all your planting because you want to gobble up the harvest on yourself. So ancient Israelites, consider your ways. Kirtland saints, you have not considered the great commandment. And you and I, since we've got to liken these scriptures so that therefore our profit and learning, do we consider where the temple lies on our list of priorities? Are we too focused about building our own house to carve out time to enter the house of God? I do worry sometimes that when all is said and done, will there be a bunch of Latter-day Saints, disappointed Latter-day Saints running around the terrestrial kingdom with empty bags, wondering where everything went. I was active. I did so much. 
And I'm sure God in his kindness will reassure us, yes, I know you did so much. But it's not just the doing, it's the, it's the growing, it's the becoming. And what did you become as a result? Do you have anything to show for all that activity? Now, verse 4, he's going to start getting more specific about what this temple is supposed to be accomplishing. What you need to consider as you consider the great blessing or great commandment to build it. For the preparation wherewith I designed to prepare mine apostles to prune my vineyard for the last time, that I may bring to pass my strange act, that I may pour out my spirit upon all flesh. I love that he calls it his strange act. And in the world's eyes, it is strange to build a temple, especially through the poverty and persecution the saints were facing in both Ohio and Missouri. It's totally counterintuitive. We'll see more of that uh, later in this lesson as well as next week's lesson. I mean, many people would say even what the temple, what you're accomplishing there is a strange act. Baptisms for the dead? I mean, if you grew up in the church, that seems totally normal. But if you didn't, that sounds really strange uh, to think about what takes place there. It's a different kind of a building. And for many, even lifelong Latter-day Saints, you enter and, it, and so much of it does seem strange to us. Unfamiliar. That's where God doesn't water anything down. And he just teaches in his way, which is through symbolism. I always joke that, that if Catholicism and Protestantism were to have, get married and have a baby, it would be Mormonism. It would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and church is from our mother Protestant side. But temple is from our father Catholic side. Now, I'm not saying we inherited these things from those parents, but, but Protestantism generally is what they call low liturgy. It's not really symbolic. It's, it's straightforward because it's focused on scripture. It's the preaching of the word. And that's what sacrament meetings like. It's straightforward. We give sermons. Well, in our case, we just give talks. Uh, but Catholicism is high liturgy. A lot of ritual and symbolism. You go to Catholic Mass, which is so rich in its symbolism. Well, that's, that's the temple side of things. There, there is truth and goodness. It's a proving of contraries. And low liturgy and high liturgy. Uh, clarity and symbolic richness. Both of those have, have roles to play in our spirituality. I, I laughed with some friends at Divinity School and said, when a Protestant joins the church, joins our church, they probably feel really good at sacrament meeting. And when a Catholic joins the church, they probably feel really good when they go to the temple. It, it feels a little bit more of that high liturgy symbolism. But for many of us who grow up only on our Protestant side, the low liturgy sacrament meetings, the temple itself can be a strange thing. Don't let that get in the way of your worship there. The Lord is trying to stretch us in different dimensions than what church does. And ultimately, what's he trying to do in verse 4? He's trying to pour out his spirit upon you and upon all flesh. It all begins at the temple, but it's supposed to spread out from there. And no wonder it's in conjunction with the temple then that he speaks of preparing his apostles Quorum of the Twelve hasn't even been called yet, but he keeps, keeps hinting we're moving in that direction. Okay, Apostles, ones who are sent... So these are missionaries. The school of the elders, the school of the prophets is supposed to prepare missionaries. Where do missionaries go before they hit the MTC? They go to the temple. They receive their endowment. Why? So that they can be prepared to go prune the Lord's vineyard. That's an interesting one. We talk about thrusting our sickle with our might. We talk about harvesting. Well, pruning? Hmm, the growth isn't 
done yet, but we do need to prune things so that it's like weeding. Okay. Uh, weeding, you're taking out things that shouldn't be there so that the strength of the soil and the sun and the water can, can get to the things that, that you do want to preserve. Well, pruning is a similar thing. Let's limit, let's focus the, the strength, the, the limited strength that we have. We have to prioritize. And so this little thing needs to go so that this other little thing can grow and, and become something nourishing, something worth preserving. So to prune the vineyard in, in a temple context, we've talked about this before, that when King David picked the site for the temple, he chose a threshing floor. Such powerful symbolism there. That a threshing floor is where you beat the wheat to separate out the chaff. Can you sense the symbolism then for a temple? The temple, even just the worthiness to enter it, to be able to pass those wonderful little old cherubim that, that are waiting to check your recommend. There's a sense of separation of the wheat and chaff within each of us. The temple cleanses me, purifies, sanctifies me along those lines. Well, the temple is also, if, it's, if the temple is a, is a place of threshing, it's also a place of pruning I have to prioritize. There is an opportunity cost to go to the temple. What am I saying no to as far as lower court or outer responsibilities so that I can say yes to my higher court inward priorities? If you're finding it hard to make time for God, maybe there's some more pruning that needs to be done. And to do that pruning, to really recognize what should stay and what should go, that requires some preparation. That's what verse 4 is all about. Preparation I designed to prepare my pruners. After all, that's what God's servants are constantly doing. Trying to help us prune our own vineyard, uh, the world or our own personal lives, to be able to focus on what matters most. And some of that pruning, like I said earlier, might seem strange, at least to the world. To do the things that will allow God to pour out His Spirit upon us is going to require some some strangeness as far as what the world considers normal. Of course, that's all relative. Uh, I love what Nephi says when he describes the great and spacious building. He calls it strange. So there were many multitudes that entered into that strange edifice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you think I'm strange? Well, I'm kind of thinking you're strange too. And so many of the spiritual things God asks us to do isn't completely rational. It's not, it's not irrational, but it's not merely rational. It goes beyond that. It's spiritual. It's not merely commonsensical all the time. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. How can being still help me come to know God? How can sacrificing 10% open the windows of heaven? How can giving God a portion of my time somehow multiply the other hours so I can get those other lesser responsibilities done too. Oh, it is strange, but it works. It is God's act. Now back to verse 5. Behold, verily I say unto you, that there are many who have been ordained among you, whom I have called, but few of them are chosen. Now that most famously appears in section 121. Many are called, but few are chosen, and he starts to explain why. Well, here he gives a reason also. Verse 6. They who are not chosen have sinned a very grievous sin. That's exactly what he said back in verse 3. You've sinned against me a very grievous sin. It doesn't make me angry or indignant. That's more reserved for sins of 
commission. But it does grieve me because I can't bless you in the way that I want. And that's usually the case with sins of omission. They were omitting the building of the temple. They were limiting God. His hands were tied because he didn't have the place where he could endow them with his power. And that grieved him. And then this amazing metaphor in verse 6, they are walking in darkness at noon day. You sense the irony there? Guys, it's noon. There's no reason to be in darkness. Uh, the brilliant meridian sun is, is shining. What are you doing in darkness? It, it's, it's all on you then. It's a choice you are making, a conscious decision. You almost have to decide to avoid the light when it's high noon. Does that remind you of the beautiful Haggai verse as well? Because the, the, the wages are being given. The sun is shining down in all its glory. You don't have anything to show for it. It's because you're choosing to walk in darkness when the option to do otherwise is right there. Do we understand what we're missing when we don't open ourselves to the glorious light of truth that God is trying to, to shine down upon us, which truth shineth, we learned about the Lord in section 88. The temple is a house of, of learning and, and order and glory and God, but it's a house of light and its fullness can shine there. High noon, in verse seven, for this cause I gave unto you a commandment six months ago that you should call your solemn assembly that your fastings and your mourning might come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which is by interpretation the creator of the first day, the beginning and the end. Evidently, the Lord isn't the only one grieving here. They've committed a grievous sin of omission. Well, your mourning, when you grieve over your sins of omission and com commission, when you feel that godly sorrow and you turn to the Lord for for deliverance, like he said in verse 1, the temple is a place where you can receive that. It's not just a place of holiness. It's a place of hope and of healing. It's a place of fasting. It's a place where you can offer your, your sacraments unto the Lord. I saw that back in section 59. It's a place where we, where we have the ear of the Lord. It's like a, a, your, call, your solemn assembly. Get a, gather a critical mass of Latter-day Saints who are fasting and mourning, repenting of their sins, calling upon God for deliverance from their own lesser selves as well as from the persecution and opposition that surrounds them. Th those things can be amplified. You know how there's certain places that just have better acoustics? Well, imagine the, the spiritual acoustics of the house of God. The, the, the gathering of saints, the solemn assembly, lifting their prayers to God in sacred ways so that they come up to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, we've seen that title a few times. It's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Interesting that the temple is the place where God is preparing his army uh, to go forth as clear as the, as the sun, fair as the moon, terrible, 
as an army with banners, terrible as in awe-inspiring, and there's nothing more awe-inspiring than, than a saint that is, that is ennobled through their temple service. There's something different about them. I mean, every act of service ennobles us in a way, but I don't know of another one quite like temple work, about the, the sacrifices and, and consecration of, of self and of time that takes place within God's house that just, it changes people. It prepares them to go prune the vineyard. No wonder missionaries need it before. It's interesting that temple precedes mission. It's a spiritual boot camp of sorts, I suppose, as the Lord of Sabaoth is preparing them. He also expands that definition beyond hosts and armies, which is by interpretation the creator of the first day. And what did God create on the first day? And God said, oh, there's the word, messenger of salvation, let there be light. Oh, there's the light of Christ that fills the immensity of space and gives light and power and glory to everything else that shines, including us. Oh, the, the Lord of the first day, he who can infuse us with light, it's high noon. You could be standing in a world with no shadows enveloped in that light. You could better distinguish between light and darkness since that's what takes place on the first day as well. Walking in darkness at noonday, maybe it's because you can't really discern the difference as well as you ought to. Well, come into the temple and you will begin to discern. You'll sense darkness because you've never seen such brilliant light. Anything shy of that is, is a lower court kind of a reality. Verse eight, verily I say unto you, I gave unto you a commandment, again, I gave it past tense six months ago, that you should build a house in the which house I designed to endow those whom I have chosen with power from on high, to endow you, to give you a gift that keeps on giving. That's what an endowment is, an initial gift that is so huge that you can live off the interest. And, and, and so the initial gift never decreases. Have you sensed the power of the endowment grow in your life? That, that you understand things more than you did when you first received it? Oh, there's growing up in God. In verse 9, For this is the promise of the Father unto you. Therefore I command you to tarry, even as mine apostles at Jerusalem. God promises you that power. That's what the endowment is for. So the temple is a place where God can keep his promises not just to the individual, but to the entire family of God. By redeeming the dead, God can keep his promise that every single child of God who's ever been sent to earth will have a way to come back home. No one is forgotten, thanks to what happens in the temple. No wonder the temple is a place worth tarrying for. Reminds me of the saints in Nauvoo as they're facing all this persecution, and it's like, you've got to get out and just leave. But it's like, no, not until the temple's done because I need to be endowed with that power if I ever hope to cross the plains and establish a new Zion somewhere else. I will tarry despite opposition and persecution in order to receive those blessings, to receive the promises that God has made me. If you have to wait a while to be able to overcome addiction or to, to sufficiently grieve and mourn and fast over your sins so that you can be clean, undefiled in order to enter the house of God. 
it's worth the tarrying. With the pace at which President Nelson is, is dotting the earth with temples, this is, it's less and less of a, of a sacrifice to get there as far as finances are concerned. But back in the old days, you'd hear so many just inspiring stories of people who would tarry for years to save up enough money to be able to travel to a temple to receive their endowment, to be sealed as a family, to receive the promises of the Father. Yes, some things are worth waiting for. So if you're in that waiting stage, if you have to tarry for a while, I promise the temple is worth your wait. In fact, I would say that even applies to those who have been to the temple and go frequently. If you still don't quite understand the power of your endowment, if you're still, oh, if God's act is still a little too strange for you, tarry. Keep going, grow into an understanding, and, and you, will, you will find yourself ultimately understanding just how much it was worth the wait. Verse 10, nevertheless, my servants sinned a very grievous sin. That's the third time he's used that phrase. And this time it seems to be more grievous sin of commission rather than just omission. This is what happened. Contentions arose in the school of the prophets which was very grievous unto me, saith your Lord. Therefore I sent them forth to be chastened. No wonder God is more grieved than, than angry here. Because it's, it's siblings not getting along. And honestly, as a parent, I don't know if there's things that grieve me more than that. Because I feel bad for both parties. Because I love them both. They're both my children. And here, the school of the prophets, and there's contention among you. People that I've called, to, people that are supposed to be going out to preach the, the peaceable things, the acceptable day of the Lord, but you can't accept one another. You can't be peaceable with one another. Remember the, the great salutation that they were supposed to offer as they entered the school of the prophets? That I, I have a, a determination that is fixed and immutable and unchangeable to accept you as a, as a friend and as a brother. And that's not how they were treating one another. Contention is not of me, the Lord says in 3 Nephi. It's of the devil. And anything he can do, I mean, if you're not one, you are not mine. So no wonder the devil does so much to increase contention between us. Because then we can't be the Lord's. We don't have the unity that will bring forth the, the power of the Holy Ghost. to, un, to So many revelations, remember how he starts? I'm giving you this because you have gathered, assembled, and you are one in asking for this instruction. Well, the school of the prophets could not live up to God's divine expectation because the people within it could not treat each other as friends and brothers. There is friction among those early saints. There was friction between leaders of the church in Kirtland and leaders of the church in Missouri. That's why the saints had to be reminded that the first presidency holds the keys of the kingdom, the whole thing. Zion, as well as every other stake of Zion. You're all, it's, all, it's one Zion. It's all one here. But you're not one. And it grieves me. It grieves me to the point of chastening you. That's how much I love you. It's also how much I love the person that you're contending against. I love you both. Makes you wonder if part of the reason the Lord needs them to build a temple 
is that not, not just that the temple would be a result of their unity, you got to get you got to get on one page to follow this one pattern, but also that unity would be a result of the temple. There's something amazing about the feeling of unity that prevails in the house of God, as we all look the same, dress the same, follow the same pattern. Some would say it's a lowest common denominator of just simple white. I would say it's a highest common denominator that we are all equally pure before God as we enter his holy house. Verse 11, verily I say unto you, it is my will that you should build a house. If you keep my commandments, you shall have power to build it. I don't know how else I can say it. I, I've given you a commandment. Maybe that word was too strong. Here I am expressing my will. Not my will, but thine be done. Well, this is the will of God. I remember once, I'm, I sometimes speed on the freeway. I've contributed to multiple states' uh, economy through speeding tickets, unfortunately. Uh, I'm, I've gotten a lot better at that. It's been years since I've, I've had one. But to me, what's interesting about keeping the speed limit is what motivates me to do so. Now, safety is a huge one. Uh, unfortunately, maybe an even bigger one is I don't want it on my record and higher car insurance and have to pay the ticket and self-preservation economically. But I remember once I was driving along the freeway and there was a sign that just said it was something like, keep the speed limit, please. And, and for some reason, the please really struck me. That it wasn't just the speed limit sign. It wasn't just the, the sirens and, and, and flashing lights behind me. It wasn't the fear of a policeman. It was just almost this kind like, they, they asked really nicely. How can I not respond in kind? Okay, I'll drive the speed limit. Thanks for being so nice as when you asked. I just sense the Lord asking as kindly as he can. It's my will. Because I want to bless you. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to endow you with power from on high. So, please... Will you build a temple? You'll think it's for me. It's really for you. So it's my will. And I promise, if you keep my commandments, you'll have power to build it. Maybe that's what you've been considering for the last six months. How on earth are we going to be able to do this? The poverty in Kirtland, the persecution in Missouri. We'll see both of those increase before they decrease. And both places, how are we going to build a temple? let alone on top of that, building a, a house for the presidency, a printing office, in neither place were they able to build all three. And the biggest part of that is because they didn't keep the commandments and therefore didn't have power to build it. But if they had, it's a great word there in the middle of 11, if, because the ball's in our court, God puts the burden on us. If you will do this, then here's the promise. Unfortunately, the saints didn't do their if, and therefore didn't get there then. There's another if in 12. If you keep not my commandments, the love of the Father shall not continue with you. Therefore, you shall walk in darkness. Now, a few verses ago, they were told they were walking in darkness. And what time was it? Noon day. Now, here that light is, is coupled with love. It's the love of the Father that will continue with you. If you're obedient, if you choose to live in the light and love of God. But if, in spite of this noonday brilliance, surrounded with, 
with possibilities for accessing the love of God. If you walk in darkness, it's because you've chosen to. It's because you have kept not the commandments. And therefore, the love of God cannot continue with you. It's always there. The sun is always shining. You're just choosing to live in the shade. And at times when we're doing that, when honestly it is hard to feel God's love, when we feel cut off from his spirit. Now there may be times, I know Elder Renlund gave an amazing message about this, about like receptor sites in our cells. And what are our receptor sites for the love of God? And what can get, interfere with them? He did mention mental health as one. And that's not our fault. And my heart goes out to anyone who struggles with that, that makes it difficult to feel God's love through no fault of your own. The other inhibitor of those receptor sites, Elder Renlund said, is our sin. And that's more what God is talking about here. If you don't keep the commandments, you have cut yourself off from the reception of the love of God. You've chosen darkness despite the fact that I love you with a noonday intensity. Please come out of the shadows and live into my light, which is my love. In verse 13, here is wisdom and the mind of the Lord. It's my will. It's my mind. It's my wisdom. It's my commandment. Take whatever is going to motivate you. But the wisdom and the mind of the Lord is to let the house be built. Get going. Not after the manner of the world. For I give not unto you that ye shall live after the manner of the world. I love that. The temple is going to be a different place because it's going to make you different and it needs to make a difference in the world. So don't, don't do it the way the world would have you do. The Kirtland Temple was unlike any other religious edifice that had ever been built. And temples today, I, I love thinking about people as they enter the temple, non-members coming through an open house, for example, and looking around going, whoa, this is different. This is not the kind of house of worship I expected. It's not a big chapel. It's not some mega church where people will gather for a big sermon. There's ceiling rooms and endowment rooms and places for washing and anointing. It's, what is this? Is this a strange act? Like, uh-huh. Because we're a peculiar people, which doesn't just mean weird. It means God owns us. We're his, okay? And so for you to be different, make the temple different. It reminds me of Nephi's ship. You're going to take a journey that, unlike any you've ever been on before. So you're going to need to build a ship unlike any you've ever seen. So no wonder Nephi has to go to the mountain frequently to receive instruction to build a ship that is different from anything he'd ever seen. If you want your life to be different so that you don't live after the manner of the world, then, then come to the Lord and have him separate light from darkness. Have him make you a little strange. It, it, believe me, it's the, it's the most amazing strangeness you could imagine. Now, 14, Therefore, let it be built after the manner which I shall show unto three of you, whom ye shall appoint and ordain unto this power. Again, there's a building committee back in 95. There's going to be at least a council of people, three of you, who receive the manner the pattern, build it the way I show you. Nephi, let's go meet at the mountaintop again. Verse 15, the size thereof shall be, we should remember these dimensions by now, 55 feet in width and let it be 65 feet in length in the inner court thereof. 
Interesting, this pattern followed by, for all three of these, these holy buildings. And in 16, lower and upper, just like we saw in the others. But it describes what happens in each one more clearly than we saw in 94. Verse 16, let the lower part of the inner court be dedicated unto me for your sacrament offering and for your preaching and your fasting and your praying and the offering up of your most holy desires unto me, saith your Lord. And then 17, let the higher part of the inner court be dedicated unto me for the school of mine apostles, saith son Amon. Or in other words, Alphas. Or in other words, Omegas. Even Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen. Beautiful name titles for the Savior. Son Amon, as in Adam Andai Amon. Son of holiness. Son of the man of holiness. Alphas, Omegas. In other words, Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. Jesus is all of those. And his house. It's the end of your procrastination. It's the beginning of your effort. Let's be up and doing. Consider your ways. Sew up your bag. Build these buildings so that I can build you. There's work to be done. It will require lower court efforts and higher court efforts. I love how he, how he differentiates the two because as I think lower and higher, part of me thinks Aaronic and Melchizedek. I sort of get a sense there in verse 16. If it's for your sacrament offerings, well, there's an ironic ordinance. The, the preparatory ordinances that I receive, the ordinances of preparation, so then I can climb to receive the ordinances of presentation. Now, there's the school of mine apostles, people that he's going to send forth to gather Israel. Makes me think of lower and upper, also in terms of heart versus head. That, that this lower, uh, even just within the body, the, the heart issues of verse 16, of fasting and praying and offering your holy desire. Is, is my heart in the right place? And then the upper court, is my head in the right place? It's a school, after all, where I'll be prepared to go prune the vineyard. So however you differentiate between upper and lower, whatever other symbols this might invoke for us, both should be wholly dedicated to God. Follow the pattern. Build after the manner he shows us. It's his, it's his mind. It's his will. Please build a place where I can come to be with you. Now, like we said, this is all happening in Kirtland. Similar things are supposed to be happening in Missouri, and we'll see very shortly what's going on in Missouri to get in the way of all that. But before we, we head southwest, let's stay in Kirtland long enough to study section 96. This Kirtland stronghold needs to be made a little more strong. The saints are wondering, leaders of the church particularly, what do we do if we're supposed to have building spots and lots for the building committee and the printing establishment and the house for the presidency and the house of God, how are we going to do all of this? And they're, and they're wondering, what is Kirtland supposed to look like? Some lands are being consecrated. How do we subdivide those into stewardships? A lot of questions of how to, how to make things happen. And so this, they come to the Lord in the spirit of unity, which opens the heavens and helps them receive revelation. This is what the Lord tells them in 96 verse 1. Behold, I say unto you, here is wisdom. You've lacked it, you've asked me for it, and here it comes. Whereby ye may know how to act concerning this matter. 
And that's often what we're asking for. Heavenly Father, help me know what to do. How should I act? For it is expedient in me. It's wise. It's expedient. It's my mind. It's my will. Fine, I'll just say it. It's a commandment, okay? It's expedient in me that this stake that I have set for the strength of Zion should be made strong. That's why I keep using that tent metaphor. You've got to strengthen your stakes because if the stake gets yanked up, then that cord falls and the tent of Zion is not as, as protective and encompassing as it was intended to be. We need strong stakes. So verse 2 let my servant Newell K. Whitney, he's the bishop there, take charge of the place which is named among you. They've been discussing what they called the French farm. What do we do with this? Upon which I designed to build mine holy house. So there's a clear direction. A lot of it is going to be used for the temple site. You see, inasmuch as the saints are confused on what to do, they're seeking God's wisdom, they're receiving it here, but I love the phrase for Bishop Whitney, take charge Take charge of the place. Come on, you're, you're the bishop. These are ironic responsibilities. This is temporal affairs of the church. And, and you've been called and given responsibility for it. So take charge. I mean, there's a contrary to be proven there also, a balance to strike. Because there are some that are so overly ambitious. This is the unrighteous dominion that we're going to learn about later. Uh, that it's like, oh, take charge even those who shouldn't be, are sometimes taking charge in ways that they, they weren't called upon to do. But the opposite extreme is also a problem. If you're called to lead, then lead. Yes, be open to, to counsel together, right? I'll, I'll give it to a, a committee. The manner will be shown to three of you, a scattered revelation. But somebody needs to take charge. Someone needs to preside, and those with keys are given the right to do so. So Bishop Whitney, take charge. Verse 3, again, let it be divided into lots. We're going to subdivide things. We saw that back in section 94 also. And what lot is, you know, first lot on the south and the uh, second lot on the north and so on. But do it according to wisdom and do it for the benefit of those who seek inheritances, as it shall be determined in council among you. Again, there's that great balance. Verse 2, Bishop, take charge. Verse 3, well, determine it in council. You see, this is neither the tyranny of one guy just taking charge and who cares what anybody else thinks, nor the anarchy of, of you know, a steering wheel in every seat. No, 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 no. There needs to be only one steering wheel and the presiding officer is the one that's behind it. Take charge of the vehicle. But everyone in the vehicle needs to be able to have a say in terms of where and how you're going to be driving. Great balance described in verse 2 and verse 3. That's wise. That's beneficial. Verse 4, Therefore take heed that ye see to this matter, and that portion that is necessary to benefit mine order for the purpose of bringing forth my word to the children of men. See, that's still part of this united firm, part of this literary firm. We've got to bring forth the word unto the children of men. The printing house is one of the big three, right? And that's going to require funds. So make sure that some of this, a portion, is set aside to benefit that order. And again, just in case Bishop Whitney is dragging his feet, uh, verse 2, take charge. Verse 4, take heed that ye see to this matter. Leaders, lead. Some work just has to get done. So see to it. Verse 5, for behold, verily I say unto you, this is the most expedient in me 
So here's upper court, okay? Here's high priorities. That my word should go forth unto the children of men. That's the trumpet of God. It's got to spread and sound in every ear for the purpose of subduing the hearts of the children of men for your good. Even so, amen. Now, he's not done with the revelation here, but, but it's just to put an exclamation point at the end. This is work that has to get done. So take charge and see to the matter and counsel together and decide what you're going to do. Be wise. Seek my guidance on these things because the word has to go forth. In a way, that's what all three buildings are for. A presidency to preside over this work, to take charge of the matters, to begin this ministry. Uh, a temple to endow my servants with power from on high and prepare them to go out and prune the vineyard. And a printing office to put something in their hands worth spreading to the four corners of the world. It's that word that will subdue their hearts that will chasten them for their sins, all in the spirit of love, beckoning them to come unto Christ. A few final verses then in this brief revelation, verse 6. Again, verily I say unto you, it is wisdom and expedient in me that my servant John Johnson, a wonderful man with whom Joseph and Emma have been living, has opened his heart and his farm and his house uh, to members of the church, my servant John Johnson, whose offering I have accepted, and whose prayers I have heard, unto whom I give a promise of eternal life, inasmuch as he keepeth my commandments from henceforth. Let's talk about a beautiful if-then promise with that. If you'll keep my commandments, I promise you eternal life. I'm aware of you, John. I call you by name. I've heard your prayers. I've accepted your offering. I want to be able to say that of all my children. Verse 7, he, John Johnson, is a descendant of Joseph. I mean, there's tribal lineage and tribal inheritance, almost a patriarchal blessing of sorts. And a partaker of the blessings of the promise made unto his fathers. Blessings to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessings of the house of Israel. Because John Johnson is one who is allowing God to prevail in his life. Verse 8, Verily I say unto you, it is expedient in me that he should become a member of the order, this united firm that is helping to counsel together for the literary and mercantile aspects of the kingdom. Become a member of the order. I'm sure he could add, as he did to Frederick G. Williams, be a lively member of it, that he may assist in bringing forth my word unto the children of men. Like we saw in verse 5, that's what's most expedient in God. Finally, verse 9, Therefore ye shall ordain him unto this blessing, and he shall seek diligently to take away encumbrances that are upon the house named among you, that he may dwell therein. Even so. Amen. Such beautiful language. Ordained unto this blessing. We saw in an earlier revelation that idea of being called by your ordination. I've been ordained, and as a result, it's calling me to do certain things. Well, here you are blessed by your ordination. You're ordained unto this blessing. Certain callings bring certain blessings. Or maybe flip it. There are certain blessings that are inherent in certain callings. And so to be ordained unto this blessing. And what's the responsibility that that calling entails? To take away encumbrances. In, in some ways, it's like, okay, John Johnson, you need to be one of these Haggai's. 
that's going around telling people to consider their ways. You need to remove whatever obstacles people are, are hiding behind or that are legitimately standing before them. Take away encumbrances. Seek diligently to do that. Whatever's holding people back. I think that's one of the best ways to describe what we could be doing in our ministry. What, what's slowing people down or holding people back from, from having their hearts subdued? from making covenants, from receiving the power that God wants to endow us with. That would be an interesting thing for, for church leaders to ask. Is there anything that is encumbering you from moving temple work and missionary work and perfecting the saints, those, the work of God, to moving it into the upper court, uh, to, to, hire, to make it a higher priority? Any encumbrances there? There's a great phrase in, in Alma, where the father of King Lamoni has just been taught by Aaron and he, and he converts and everything changes. And then he can't force spirituality or conversion upon his subjects, but he can remove anything that's standing in, its, in, in the gospel's way. He can take away encumbrances. And so what's the king do? He sends a proclamation throughout his kingdom that the word of God might have no obstruction. Beautiful phrase. No obstruction. Here, no encumbrances. Please take off the emergency brake and hit the gas. Move forward with faith. Seek diligently to do that for other people, whatever those encumbrances might entail. Now, there were certain encumbrances in Kirtland. Many of them were inward. Uh, contention in the school of the prophets like we saw, poverty and lack of being able to consecrate, to be able to build a temple. Uh, what, what do we do with these people who are coming in? Well, if there's more internal encumbrances in, in Ohio, there are more external oppositions in Missouri. In fact, they're facing more opposition than even Joseph could possibly know from anything short of divine means. We'll see more of that next week. You see, unbeknownst to the prophet, because it takes a while for news to go from, from Missouri to Ohio, 10 days before this revelation was received, the saints were forced to sign a, an agreement that we will leave Independence, Jackson County, Missouri. We'll get out since you won't allow us to stay. I mean, speaking of printing offices, the one in Independence had been destroyed. Speaking of the temple site, there was so much opposition, no wonder that no work had begun. And speaking of a house for the presidency, those who presided over the church in Missouri had, had taken more stock in their fear than in their faith and had made that agreement. And, and some, I can't blame them. It, talk about between a rock and a hard place, uh, the rock of revelation, this is what you're supposed to do, and the hard place of difficult neighbors that are absolutely standing in your way. Talk about encumbrances that... I mean, Bishop Partridge tarred and feathered. W.W. Phelps's printing press thrown out of the building. The, the girls gathering pages of the Book of Commandments and hiding in the cornfield. That's all happening during this period. And, and finally the saints say, fine, we promise to leave if you'll just allow us to gather whatever we have left and move in, and in peace. The Missourians were suggesting things like, well, let's create a Mormon county, but just get out of ours. We'll talk more about the specifics of that next week. But in section 97, without knowing any of those details, Joseph Smith receives revelation from him who knows all the details. And here is instruction for the saints in 
that part of Zion. If 96 was for the saints in Kirtland, 97 is for the saints in Independence. Verse 1, Verily I say unto you, my friends, constant reassurance, I speak unto you with my voice, even the voice of my spirit, that I may show unto you my will concerning your brethren in the land of Zion, many of whom are truly humble and are seeking diligently to learn wisdom and to find truth. They're no different than you. You've been humble here and been humbled by my chastisement. They are humble also, humbled in large part by their circumstances. You are seeking wisdom to know what to do here. They are seeking wisdom to know what to do there. And so I am speaking to my prophet through the voice of my spirit, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same, so that you know my will concerning them. Verse 2, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Blessed are such, for they shall obtain. For I, the Lord, show mercy unto all the meek, and upon all whomsoever I will, that I may be justified when I shall bring them unto judgment. Ooh, there's a little. I'd like the first part of that verse more than the end. Ultimately, I will bring you to judgment. And it will be a just judgment. And I will be justified in making that just judgment because I've been merciful all along the way. How can you complain about my justice when you've ignored my mercy? How can you chafe at your condemnation when you never took advantage of your time to repent? That's why I chastened you in the first place, to show that there is a way of deliverance. That's how much I've loved you, right? Now, there were those that were worthy of, the, of God's love, who were walking in the light instead of in the darkness. They were humble. They were seeking diligently to learn wisdom. They were meek. And those are the ones that are blessed and shall obtain. But there are others that didn't quite live up to that. And they need to learn to change. They need to learn to be better. So let's give them a school too. We've got the school of the prophets in Kirtland. There needs to be a school of, of, of would-be prophets there in Missouri as well. Verse 3, Behold, I say unto you, concerning the school in Zion, I, the Lord, am well pleased that there should be a school in Zion, and also with my servant Parley P. Pratt, for he abideth in me. Uh, we haven't heard from Brother Parley in a while. He was part of that original Lamanite mission, amazing church leader, so dedicated, and also well-educated compared to most other church members, so a good person to be running the school. Verse 4, Inasmuch as he continueth to abide in me, so there's an if then also, he shall continue to preside over the school in the land of Zion until I shall give unto him other commandments. I mean, Parley was the kind of guy that would do anything that was asked of him. So if it's stay here in, in independence and run the, the school, yes, sir. If it's go on a mission and go preach the gospel, yes, sir. Uh, he was that type of diligent disciple of Christ. As a result, verse 5, I will bless him with a multiplicity of blessings. There's some higher math for you. And what will those blessings entail? In expounding all scriptures and mysteries, to the edification of the school and of the church in Zion. I'm sure he was grateful for that as the head of the, as the schoolmaster. God will bless me to expound scripture. If the school is meant to help prepare these pruners of the vineyard, then yes, they're going to need to know the scriptures. They're going to need to understand the mysteries of God and not in some kind of informational way alone. And certainly not just in some kind of entertainment kind of way. This is not infotainment. This is edification. I'm trying to build you up. That's why we're trying to build all these buildings. The, the real building I'm after is you. In verse 6, 
to the residue of the school, I, the Lord, am willing to show mercy. Nevertheless, there are those that must needs be chastened, and their works shall be made known. Sounds like the same kind of problems existed in Missouri as it had in Ohio. Contention in the school of the prophets. Yes, there are those that need to be chastened at that school. I'll be merciful to them. That's what my love uh, entails. But you got to change. And you need to change now. Because in verse 7, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. I, the Lord, have spoken it. John the Baptist uses similar language as he's crying repentance in order to prepare for the coming of Christ, to prepare for the day of the Lord. The, this idea of the axe laid at the root of the tree, it's interesting for me, if I had to go do a job in the yard, it would take me a while to start the job because what do I have to do first? I have to find the tool to accomplish that job. And my garage is a mess. Uh, I do my best to keep things organized, and then tools just kind of wander away, uh, usually with littler hands. Uh, and it's like, where, where is that? It's going to take me a while to find it before I can actually use it. But not in this case. If, I, if my job for the day is, is cutting down trees, my axe is right next to it. It's laid at the root of the tree. All I have to do is go over, pick it up, and chop. You sense the urgency that the Lord is, is, is speaking to the saints about? You've got to repent now. Don't procrastinate the day of your repentance. It's high noon. It's only going to get darker. So you need to begin to live into this light and love. If the tree doesn't bring forth good fruit, then it's time to do some weeding, some pruning of the vineyard, some chopping of the trees. Verse 8, Verily I say unto you, all among them who know their hearts are honest and are broken and their spirits contrite and are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, yea, every sacrifice which I the Lord shall command, they are accepted of me. No need to take a swing at those trees. Here we see this, this combination of broken hearts and contrite spirits. But what I love about verse 8, the way it's phrased, it's, it's not just those with broken hearts and contrite spirits. It's those who know that they have those things. It's, it's one thing, I don't know, just to receive the Spirit's confirmation that you're doing right, you're doing well. And how do we know that? And that's a tough one. Uh, it's not just about checking off boxes of ordinances like, oh yeah, I was baptized and I was endowed and I was sealed, so I'm good. It's like, mm, how about this? How about a box for this? Broken heart or this contrite spirit. And you're, you're sitting there with your, your pen going, I don't know. Is there like a scale on this somewhere? Mostly broken hearted, somewhat contrite of heart. And it's just, do you know that you have, that you're there? Now, how on earth can we know? In the lectures on faith, Joseph teaches a powerful thing about knowing that, we're, that, that we can exercise faith in God and trust in his promised blessings. Uh, the third element of faith. First was knowing that God is. Second was knowing what he's like. Third is knowing your life is in harmony with his will so that you can call upon his blessings. You can trust in his judgment and justice for that, not just for his mercy. Well, how do we know that? And Joseph's answer in the lectures on faith is sacrifice. There's something about putting your money where your mouth is. In fact, I remember this hit me as a greenie missionary. I was teaching a guy who spoke English, which was my favorite guy because I could actually teach him in the way I wanted instead of, here's my four vocabulary words. Let's talk about that. 
Well, uh, he, he was learning the gospel, but he just wasn't sure if, if he wanted to make the leap of faith. And I remember saying to him about faith, that it's, yeah, he, was, he was worried about the risk, the gamble. I just don't know for sure. And it was like, well, I, I get that. But what are you willing to risk on it? Are you, are you equally convinced that where you are right now is where God wants you to be? Because not deciding is deciding. But I, I, it was interesting. I just remember saying to him, imagine, I'm not a poker player. I'm not a gambler. I don't know when to hold them or when to fold them. But in terms of knowing my cards came from the dealer, that I can gain an understanding of through the power of the Holy Ghost. I can have confirmed to me that, that I'm doing God's will. And I can have proof that I trust in my hand based on the stakes that I'm willing to raise. Please forgive me if a gambling metaphor is totally inappropriate for a gospel discussion. But to, to think about, I, I remember saying to this guy, what am I willing to bet on my belief in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? And I started talking about tithing. I started talking about church service. I started talking about my mission, saying I'd spent the last years saving up everything I could so I can pay my own way. Yeah, missions, they don't pay us. We pay for the privilege. It's, it's less than minimum wage. It's negative wage, okay? But it all comes out. Uh, here I am. It's like I said, I'll bet $10,000. That was roughly the cost of my mission. I'll bet two years of my life, and pretty good years too. 19 and 20, are, that, that's, that's prime time. But I'll, I'll risk it. I'll bet on my belief in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm putting in onto the table. What are you willing to risk? Or to use a more scriptural term, what are you willing to sacrifice. Because if there is no reward, then we, we, we lost it all. We lost the bet. If, if God is real and his promises are sure, then it wasn't a sacrifice at all. It was an investment because there's always an increase on whatever we give to him. But you see what he's saying there in verse 8? How do I know if my heart is honest? How do I know if it's broken? How do I know if my spirit's contrite? Oh, you'll observe your covenants by sacrifice. Whatever sacrifice the Lord might command you, there's something powerful about that. I, I know of people who observe their covenants, but there's a whole another level, a, a higher and holier level of those who observe their covenants, but do it by sacrifice. I think of people who live the gospel against the odds. People who will stand up and stand out as Disciples of Jesus Christ when it's completely countercultural. I think of, of LGBTQ brothers and sisters who live the law of chastity because they know the gospel is true and the plan of salvation has been revealed. And they are keeping the same law of chastity I am, but at a higher level of sacrifice. I see people who are paying tithing when they're 90% left over is barely enough to meet their needs. I see people who are offering a generous fast offering when it cuts into things they, they would probably prefer to be doing with those funds. I see people serving in callings that they not only didn't ask for, but didn't even want when they said yes to it. 
I see parents having additional children when they know it will come at a cost, a, a greater sacrifice. I know missionaries that go out and serve despite mental health challenges and physical challenges, knowing this is going to be harder for me than probably for most. There's, there's, you can multiply the examples and they all receive a multiplicity of blessings from a God who recognizes the cost of their sacrifice. That is evidence. I, I hope you understand that by doing that, by making those kinds of sacrifices, you are giving God evidence of your belief. Accept the evidence for yourself as well. I don't know if I know. I don't know if my heart is sufficiently broken or contrite. Well, then take as exhibit A your willingness to keep your covenants by sacrifice. There's no better way to know that our heart is in the right place. Verse 9, For I, the Lord, will cause them, cause those who know their hearts are broken, cause them who are observing covenant by sacrifice, I'll cause them to bring forth as a very fruitful tree, which is planted in a goodly land by a pure stream that yieldeth much precious fruit. Compare that to the tree that was mentioned in verse 7. The one that has the axe lying right next to the root. The one that's bringing forth no fruit. And so it's just encumbering the land, the ground of his vineyard. That, that's the phrase used in Jacob chapter 5. It's, it's just come, it's taking up space. And to think about John Johnson removing encumbrances. Well, the Lord is removing encumbrances too. He's chopping down trees that aren't fruitful. As opposed to verse 9 how he's nurturing and planting and digging and dunging and pruning and all of these things to help good trees planted in goodly land next to pure streams bring forth precious fruit. By the way, pretty good description of the land of Zion. It was intended as God's center place because it was a goodly land. This tree, you Latter-day Saints there in Independence, that's the tree I'm looking for you to become. It is by a pure stream. You are meant to yield much precious fruit. So verse 7 or verse 9, the choice is yours. What kind of a tree will you be? Verse 10, Verily I say unto you that it is my will that a house should be built unto me in the land of Zion, like unto the pattern which I have given you. Sound like what he just said to the saints in Kirtland? Both of these strongholds, both of these stakes of Zion, need to have a house of the Lord within them. I mean, I don't know at what point uh, is our temples super saturating the earth, uh, but it's amazing to see that within each stake of Zion, it's almost the self-contained kingdom of God. And we're getting closer and closer to having temples within stakes. It struck me in Nashville when I lived there that the temple, the Nashville temple is built in the parking lot of the Franklin, Tennessee Stake Center. It's like, wow, stake of Zion with a temple on the same lot. Uh, it, it's amazing. And, and a lot of the smaller temples were built in, along those same lines. So whether it's the stake in Kirtland, whether it's the stake in Independence, you need a house of God built after the pattern that God has given. And let it be built speedily by the tithing of my people. Because 12, this is the tithing and the sacrifice which I, the Lord, require at their hands that there may be a house built unto me for the salvation of Zion, 
Now there, the Lord is speaking far beyond anything Joseph could possibly know. Ten days ago, they, were, they agreed to leave, and now they're being told, oh yeah, make sure you build that house. Do it as quickly as you can. Do it by tithing and by sacrifice, because that's what's going to save you. And it's like, what? No, our salvation came in agreeing to leave. It's the only reason they let us stay longer. Uh, they were going to drive us out with, which, with, with pitchfork and gun. Uh, they, they destroyed the, the printing office. They tarred and feathered the bishop. There is persecution, and we needed to be saved from it. And so out of our fear of what we were facing, we thought that the only salvation that would come is if we promised to leave independence behind and, and just get out. And yet what the Lord, what's the Lord saying? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, yes, you need it. I'm glad you were thinking about your salvation. Just were you too worried about your temporal salvation as opposed to your spiritual salvation? I actually want to work on both with you. But if you want to be saved, you need to build a temple right there in independence. Center spot, like I said earlier, when things seemed easier done. Well, now they seem impossibly done. Like, like they can't be done at all. I mean, in some ways, nothing speaks of, of permanence, of deep roots in a place, quite like a temple. It's one of the reasons I, I am so amazed by all the temples that President Nelson is, is building all around the world, because it does speak of that, that sense of permanence. You don't, you don't build a temple if you're not planning to stay for a while. I mean, Nauvoo Temple example notwithstanding. It just does suggest permanence, strength, stability, steadfastness. Oh, we're here for the duration. There's a foundation. It's set in stone. We're dedicating it to God because we're dedicated ourselves to God. And you want to talk about a strange act so God can pour out his spirit? You want to talk about something counterintuitive just because it was so countercultural? The Missourians couldn't stand the Latter-day Saints. And unfortunately, vice versa was true a lot of times as well. Missouri was a slave state. Most members of the church came from Yankee New England uh, or Yankee Northeastern Ohio. And, and more, the saints were better educated than most of the Missouri locals. It was a clash of cultures like you wouldn't believe. And with the saints streaming in even faster than the Lord wanted them to, I mean, if the Lord was getting nervous about that and Bishop Partridge was getting nervous about that, well, imagine how the Missourians are feeling about it. Where a, a, a d democratic area thinking, we can't vote ourselves out of this situation because they're going to outnumber us before long. So what's our only hope? Get them out. But what was the saints' only hope? Stay. Sink down deep roots. Build a temple here. And I can just picture the, the, the leaders in Missouri going, are you insane? I mean, our, I mean, building a home here was too much for the Missourians. Building a printing office was, to, was, was offensive to the point of destroying it. Build a temple? There's no way. Well, that all depends. Because part of building a temple is building a people prepared to enter it. Hmm. Part of building a celestial house of God is to become a celestial people of God. And you know what? Those do make good neighbors. Maybe part of the conflict with the Missourians is, is the fact that you're not temple worthy. You're not living in the kind of way that, that God would want to live with you, let alone the Missourians wanting to live with you. I think, I think there's something to this, that God is, 
It's not just having a building there. We're going to see that later in this revelation. It's about becoming the kind of people that the building represents. And if you were true saints, how could your neighbors not come to love you as you are loving your neighbor as yourself? How could your enemies not become your friends if you are loving your enemies, praying for those who despitefully use you and persecute you? Treat them like that. Chances are they're not going to keep persecuting and speaking evil of you. It, it, it'll change hearts because your hearts are changed. They're, they're broken. They're honest. They're contrite. And there's, it's almost, there's almost a contagion to that. As you become Christ-like, other people are, are drawn into the same mix. It's, it's hitting the tuning fork. And the light of Christ within them begins to resonate. The problem was not just that they hadn't built a temple. The problem was that they hadn't become temples of God themselves. And so you want to be saved, Zion? Then build a temple. But first and foremost, build yourself into the kind of person that would be welcomed there. That's the real tithing. Not just giving up some money to build a house, but giving up a part of yourself, namely the natural man part. That's the real sacrifice the Lord is asking. Uh, a sacrifice in order to keep covenant. Not just to to dig stones out of a quarry. You understand the difference, what the Lord's really after here? Like I said, we'll see it clearly stated in a few verses. But first, verse 13, what is this house supposed to become? A place of thanksgiving for all saints. I know you're not feeling very thankful for what's going on in Missouri yet, but it, the temple will be a place of thanksgiving. It will be a place of instruction for all those who are called to the work of the ministry and all their several callings and offices. I mean, school of the prophets aside, there is no greater house of learning than the temple of God. Verse 14, that they may be perfected in the understanding of their ministry, in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on the earth, the keys of which kingdom have been conferred upon you. That sounds so familiar back in section 88, right? To, to gain learning, to seek learning, even by study and also by faith. To, to gain wisdom out of the best books. To teach one another words of wisdom. To gain a spiritual education and a secular education. Why? So that you can magnify callings and fulfill missions. Part of P. Pratt, you've got your work cut out for you. This school, this temple, this preparation of, of pruners of the, of the vineyard. Verse 15, inasmuch as my people build a house unto me in the name of the Lord and do not suffer any unclean thing to come into it, that it be not defiled, my glory shall rest upon it. We saw the same promise back in 94. Verse 16, yea, and my presence shall be there, for I will come into it and all the pure in heart that shall come into it shall see God. This is coming from the same author of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, here we see where that happens. Here we see how it happens. It's purifying yourself. Like I said, it's not just building the building. It's building yourself. It's, it's wanting to live, in a, to, to live in such a way that God wants to dwell with you. So no wonder the Missourians would, want, would be okay with you dwelling with them. Nothing softens the heart of your neighbor quite like being a good neighbor to them. 
So be pure of heart. Be honest of heart. Be broken hearted. Live commandments, tithing, sacrifice, consecration, purity. Become someone that can see God so that others can see God in you. That's for the salvation of Zion too. Verse 17 is the flip side. We saw it, the, the positive and the negative side by side in 94. Here it is in 97. But if it be defiled, I will not come into it. My glory shall not be there. I will not come into unholy temples. Now we saw an if in 17. We'll see an even bigger if in 18. It's a daunting if. Now behold, if Zion do these things, she shall prosper and spread herself and become very glorious, very great, very terrible. Again, that's that terrible as an army with banners. This is the Lord of Sabaoth calling, enlisting them after all. And to come forth from the temple, fully clothed in the, the armor of God, the glory of God, endowed with power from on high, if she'll do that, if she'll build a temple and become temple ready themselves, if they'll observe covenants by sacrifice, if they'll be brokenhearted and contrite-spirited, if they'll be good neighbors and pure of heart, if they'll live up to Zion, then Zion will not be moved. Zion will prosper. Which kind of a tree do you want to be? Because right now it's the Missourians holding on to that axe. And it's laid right next to your root. And they're, they're starting to chop already. Some of you have already been uprooted. And the rest promised that you would follow suit. But if you're a verse 9 Latter-day Saint, if that's the kind of tree you're building, then yes, Zion will prosper. It will spread herself and become glorious. Can you sense some tree imagery there? Can you sense some temple imagery there? Verse 19, the nations of the earth shall honor her. I know you're feeling the exact opposite from the Missourians. They shall say, surely Zion is the city of our God. Surely Zion cannot fall, neither be moved out of her place. For God is there. The hand of the Lord is there. That's an amazing statement. That the nations of the earth, uh, nations in Hebrew is the word they use for Gentiles. So these are people that aren't even part of Zion, but they can't help but recognize that, that God is a part of Zion. That Zion's the city of our God. I, I remember when I was a student in Israel, uh, tour groups would come through the Jerusalem Center. And it's an incredible place. And there's like a, a, a visitor book. And you can go in and sign it. And there would be people that would just leave these messages about what they felt when they were there. I've heard similar stories from temple open houses. That people of other faiths, coming in to see this strange place, are touched by the, the Spirit of the Lord that He pours out. That's what this strangeness is always for. And they just leave different. They, in fact, many temple dedicatory prayers have prayed for exactly that. As people come into this holy place, may they leave different. May they leave confessing that there is something different about this place. Even if they can't understand it, put, put, they can't put their finger on it, they will confess, surely Zion is the city of our God. They'll honor her, even if they don't choose to, to live by the same standards. Actually, it reminds me, when, when Ammon... Uh, when King Lamoni and his wife and his servants have all, you know, passed out in this wonderful celestial coma, uh, as they're being born of God, and Ammon's so excited, he passes out as well. Uh, and, but then all these other people come at, at Abish's behest, and 
Unfortunately for Abish, it's not exactly the missionary experience that he had envisioned. And they start arguing over things. And it's like, oh, it's because the, the king did this. Or it's because they, he let this wicked, uh, this horrible Nephite in, in town. And it's like, it's all falling apart. But there's a certain group that as they're discussing why this has happened and what are we going to do about it. One, one group says something along this, these lines. They say, this has got to be God. That same God that, dang it, always seems to preserve the Nephites in battle. That's an incredible admission on the part of the Lamanites. It's like, we outnumber them. We're stronger than they are, but dang it, we always lose. What is it about Nephites that makes them different? It's, it's almost like God's on their side. Well, dang it, he probably is. And that admission speaks volumes. I sense the same thing here in verse 19, that if we can be truly Christ-like, without being condescending, if we can hold to God's standard for ourselves without using those standards as a bludgeon or to be judgmental against other people who choose to live differently, if we can be good saints and good neighbors, live the first great commandment and couple it with the second, can you imagine what, what people would think of us? Even if they don't agree with, with our, our beliefs, they would respect our behaviors. Even if they don't want to live like us, they would want to live with us. You got that sense at the end of section 45, that in the last days and the signs of the times and wars and rumors of wars and chaos and plague spreading out across the nations, if you want to be safe, there's only one place to go. If you don't want to be at war with your neighbors, then what kind of neighbors should you seek? Temple building, temple worshiping saints of the Most High God. Sacrificial saints, broken heart, contrite spirit, pure of heart. Zion, that, Zion is the place to be. Zion is the people to be. And the world itself will ultimately acknowledge it. In verse 20, God hath sworn by the power of his might to be her salvation and her high tower. We're going to see more about this high tower next week. The place of safety and of strength. The place of perspective. God will be that high tower. God will be our salvation if we'll let him save us. Save us from ourselves before we need to be saved from our enemies. Verse 21, Therefore verily thus saith the Lord. So verily, here's where the rubber hits the road. Let Zion rejoice, despite the persecution, despite the opposition. For this is Zion. Now prepare yourself for a redefinition. And one that he puts in all bold print, just in case we miss it. This is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore let Zion rejoice, while all the wicked shall mourn. And you see how the word Zion has expanded over time? Initially, it was, oh, pinpoint the spot across from the courthouse in Independence, Missouri. It's where you're going to build the temple. That's Zion. And so Zion was always synonymous with that. Well, what about this stake of Zion in Kirtland? Hmm. Okay, there's other Zions than one. Ah, because Zion was never meant to be a place alone. It was always meant to be a people. I have said this repeatedly. And I've used alliteration in hopes that it will stick with our, in our mind. That Zion has to be lifestyle before its location. 
that Zion is people even more than place, that Zion has to be our attitude if we ever hope for it to become our address. I mean, think about what Paul said about the temple as we've been talking about the temple all this time, that ye are the temple of God. It's all about you. The kingdom of God is within you. We're the ones God is trying to save. It's not the restoration of the church or the priesthood or the gospel. It's the restoration of my people. And so Zion, please become the pure in heart. It's the pure in heart that will see God. Become a true temple of God in whom the Spirit of God can dwell. Because then who would stand in your way to build a physical temple of God in your midst? All these pseudo-saints that are jumping the gun to get to the right place but never became the right people along the way? Wouldn't that have been interesting if, if Brigham Young had said that when he su sunk his cane into the soil of Salt Lake Valley? Instead of this is the place to be able to say this is the people? I pray that someday a prophet will be able to do that. Better yet that the Lord himself will, do, will say that as he accepts a people that have fully accepted him, that this is my people, the pure in heart. That's a Zion that can rejoice, as opposed to the mourning of the wicked, no matter where they happen to be living. I love the fact that they are learning this in the middle of a section about constructing things, uh, surrounded by other sections about building buildings of God. Yes, build a temple in Kirtland. Yes, build a temple in Independence. Yes, build printing offices and an office for the First Presidency. But the real edification that God is after is to edify the body of Christ, namely members of the church. The kingdom we are building is a kingdom of saints, not of structures. God cares about faith far more than floor plans. He wants spiritual strength more than just stake centers. And the temples he cares most about are not the ones that we build, it's the ones that we become. Ye are the temple of God. When Daniel saw in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream the kingdom of God rolling forth to fill the earth, what was it? It was a stone. It was cut out of the mountains without hands. And what a reminder that it's not physical buildings, but spiritual ones that constitute the kingdom of God. It's the things that God does within us without hands. And how do we get to that point? Speaking of hands, it's through clean hands and a pure heart. That is Zion. Verse 22, For behold, and lo, vengeance cometh speedily upon the ungodly, as the whirlwind who shall escape it? Now, perhaps the saints in Missouri were thinking of the Missourians with that phrase, the ungodly. But the, the, what makes us most ungodly is when we claim God, but don't live up to it. There's a hypocrisy there. It's falling short of our covenants. And so I, I see the saints in verse 22 more than the Missouri neighbors. The Missourians will simply be the tool of that vengeance, not the target of it. Who shall escape it? Fascinating question. Reminds me of the one at the end of Revelation chapter 6. Who shall be able to stand? Who's going to be able to do it? Well, the pure in heart will. They're the ones that, can't, that won't be moved. 
Remember we saw that verse about the, the promised land will spew out unpromised people that are keeping the land of promise from living up to its promises? Well, there's the whirlwind that will cast them out. Who's going to escape that? Only the righteous, only the pure in heart. Verse 23, the Lord's scourge shall pass over by night and by day. Pass over. Oh, I'd rather have a different kind of pass over. Thank you very much. And the report thereof shall vex all people. Yea, it shall not be stayed until the Lord come. Sounds a bit like section 87 about these wars that will spread. Starting in a kind of contained over oh, there in South Carolina, then this nation, then other nations, and then pretty soon all nations. It's poured out everywhere. Well, this scourge that will vex all people, it's not going to be stayed until the Lord come. So don't think that COVID-19 is the first or the last of them. We've seen all kinds of these sorts of scourges. Verse 24, for the indignation of the Lord is kindled against their abominations and all their wicked works kindled. Well, there's the fire of the Lord. Verse 25, nevertheless, so that was all bad news, but here's the, the turn it around. Nevertheless, Zion shall escape if, there's another if, if she observed to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her, including and especially building a temple and becoming temples themselves. You saw the if in 18, if Zion do these things, the if in 25, if she observed to do all things, 26, but if she observe not to do whatsoever I have commanded her, then I will visit her according to all her works with sore affliction, with pestilence, with plague, with sword, with vengeance, with devouring fire. And based on the presence of all of those things worldwide, it definitely seems that we're fulfilling the if of 26 instead of the if of 25. God is trying to wake up the world for the conflict of justice. He's trying to help us change. This is the alarm clock of section 43. He's calling, he's clucking. The hen is spreading her wings and trying to gather us into his temple, a temple worthy people. Now verse 27, nevertheless, let it be read this once to her ears, that I, the Lord, have accepted of her offering. And if she sin no more, none of these things shall come upon her. Oh, yes, 10 days have passed since you agreed to leave, but it's not too late. I'll accept what you've done. I've accepted your offering, your best attempt. Keep trying. Go back. Become Christ-like to your neighbors. Build a temple that will become the envy and the honor of all nations. Become the pure in heart that see God and that others see God within. Verse 28, and as a result, I will bless her with blessings and multiply a multiplicity of blessings upon her and upon her generations forever and ever, saith the Lord your God. Amen. There's some more of that higher arithmetic to multiply a multiplicity of blessings. I doubt the saints in Missouri were feeling many of those at the time. Then again, how many of them were living into them to the point that God could shower them down upon them? As Parley P. Pratt himself said, the old schoolmaster there in Independence, this revelation was not complied with by the leaders and church in Missouri as a whole. Notwithstanding, many were humble and faithful. 
Therefore, the threatened judgment was poured out to the uttermost, as the history of the five following years will show. We'll see more of that history beginning next week, as the chronology of these revelations really starts picking up some speed. But what a tragedy in, in Parley's words. As a whole, yes, there were some beautiful exceptions to the rule, but sadly, the rule was a bunch of rule breakers. Sadly, the norm was those that followed the world's norms more than the Lord's norms. They wouldn't live into the Lord's strange act. And so they chose the wrong if. They became the wrong tree. And as a result, they couldn't stay in the Lord's promised land because they didn't keep the Lord's, they didn't live worthy of the Lord's promises. Now, again, I'll admit, what the saints were asked to do in section 97 went against every logical uh, thought of the leaders of the church in Missouri. There's no way we can build a temple there. We've already agreed to leave. But like he said about, like we said about God's strange act, there is much about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is counterintuitive. Lose yourself and you'll find yourself? Yeah, that's counterintuitive. Give me 10% and you'll end up doing more with the 90 than you could have done with 100%? Yeah, that's counterintuitive. Give me some of the best years of your life and I will multiply a multiplicity of blessings on all the years that remain. I'll admit that when it comes to tithing, the math doesn't work. But the principle does, miraculously. The, the counterintuitive nature of some of God's commandments. You want to bless, you know, it's like you want to knock down the walls of Jericho. Then just walk around it seven times and blow your trumpets. Like, what? What's that going to do? That's the weirdest military strategy of all time. But it worked. You want to protect your, your family from the, the evils of the world around you? Then, oh, get together every Monday night and sing some songs and play some games and have a little lesson. Like, wait, what? Strange strategy. But it works. Why does it work? Because God is at work within us. What we, the way we live allows him to do that. We, we keep our covenants by sacrifice. We become the pure in heart. Best of all, in a very humble way, we know that that's what we're becoming. We can feel God working within us. That's the kind of work we can all be involved in. It's amazing to me that after these revelations came to the saints, and especially that, that building committee of, of Reynolds Cahoon and Jared Carter and primarily Hiram Smith, Joseph's incomparable older brother, as soon as Hiram reads the, the, these revelations about get rid of these encumbrances and take charge and, and, and let's get this stuff going. Uh, consider your ways and let's build a temple. Well, they, as revealed by Revelation, here's the spot. And so let's begin. Uh, this building committee comes together. The saints in Kirtland start working on their temple since the saints in Missouri hadn't begun to work on theirs. And good old Hiram once the decision is made of where it's going to be, it happens to be in a wheat field. Hiram literally runs and grabs a scythe and goes out into that wheat field and starts to harvest, starts to cut it down. Now, I don't know if summertime is the right time to begin harvesting. That seems like it would be more in the fall. But he doesn't care. God says he wants a temple and he wants it right here. Well, we're going to get at it. I love the symbolism there that he literally thrust in his sickle with his might to make way to build the temple of God. I mean, you want to talk about a pattern worth following. My friends, whatever is encumbering you, 
whatever's getting you in your way of becoming Zion. All location and addresses aside, thrust in your sickle. The harvest time has been hastened. And may we roll up our sleeves and get to work. I am grateful for the house of God, grateful for the houses of God. And more importantly, I am grateful for the saints of God that filled them and the spirit of God that comes to meet them there. May we do all within our power to thrust in our sickle with our might and prepare the earth to become God's holy habitation.